Before we kick this show off, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Under Pressure Outdoors is brought to you in part by Hasmore Outdoor Products. Hasmore Outdoor Products manufactures quality replacement seats for a multitude of climber brands as well as a host of other products built with the hunter in mind. Take it from us. Your butt will thank you and you'll be able to spend more hours in your stand. Hop over to their website by clicking on the link in the podcast description and order the tree stand trick out kit for your stand today and you'll have everything you need to hunt longer and harder. Make sure you use code UPO15 at checkout to get 15% off your next order. I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. So we're back again this week, and uh, we're going to kind of discuss some stuff about the hunting industry and hunting in general that uh, we actually haven't covered in over across three seasons. And it's going to be pretty interesting, but before we get into that, we got a few interesting uh, articles that have come out here recently. Uh, but before that, we still have crawfish bowl tickets on sale. So you guys need to hop over to our Facebook page and buy those, or you can just scroll right down to the bottom of this podcast description. There's going to be a link to those tickets right there on the event bar page, and you guys can join us on May 7th to just throw down on some crawfish. So it's going to be a lot of good time. And then right after crawfish boil, we're going on our Swanee River fishing expedition. Um, how many spots we have left for that now, Jim, for the cabin? Well, the spots on the trip are unlimited, but we had uh, 18 spots in the cabin on Tuesday, or I'm sorry, Thursday night at Lafayette Blue, and 17 of the 18 have now been claimed. If we go over 18, we'll have to do it with uh, some sort of approval from those that are already in, but if we get number 19 and 20, we'll just eat better on the trip. Nah, knowing that, yeah, right. <laughs> just cut them up and eat them and a little hungry. Fish get a little, you know, fish get no, a little No, oh, okay, no, not eat sorry, the, Yes, bad. I'm talking about oh, throw their money the into. Party here. <laughs> throw their, <laughs> we're not going to be that lost, everybody. It, it may seem like a wilderness, but it's not that much. Extra Vienna sausages at the uh, little stop mart there at, across the river. Well, uh, I don't know if we ever get stranded with you guys, I'm going to have to be the one that volunteers to hike out because I'm not camping out with you guys <laughs> on survival, <laughs> waiting on rescue. <laughs> No, I mean, it's a chill trip, we'll, but no, uh, all, all downstream, the, all downstream. No, knowing the people in the cabins, I, I don't see anyone in there having a problem squeezing an extra person or two to, to go stay in the cabin for a night. No, the cabins are huge. I just want to make sure that nobody has to sleep on the floor unless they want to. Yeah. I'll sleep on the floor if somebody wants to come in there. I got a good sleeping mat. I'll be all right. We now have 19 spots. <laughs> I'll pay my 50 bucks just for the AC. Yeah. You want it. But, you know, it should be pretty nice, even, you know, being May in, in Florida on the water, so it won't be too bad. Yeah, just to be clear, man, when there's uh, no nights for sleeping in the mud. Um, on the nights that are not in cabins, are still fully screened in sleeping platforms, electricity, fans, very nice uh, covered pavilions. Um, the Swanee River, what do they call it? The Swanee River Wilderness Trail. It's uh, it's all out back and, and high adventure while you're on the water, and then it's pretty damn cush once you hit the dock. <laughs> it's a great mix. That's the way I like it. So this is not a character building experience. No. <laughs> it can be. 
Depending on which way the wind's blowing. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Hopefully it's blowing down river. Yeah. But we'll see. It's going to be fun either way. And I mean, you guys had a blast last year and I'm really looking forward to it this year. But so it, you guys know uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe three episodes ago, we talked about um, the the morning to shut down hunting on some national wildlife refuges. And I stated that I thought that they would remove lead ammunition from the national wildlife refuges before they shut down hunting. And that's exactly the direction this is going. Um, I don't think that's all bad. Uh, It's in my opinion, a compromise. I don't really want to compromise in the, you know, give an inch, take a mile game, but, I I really wouldn't be surprised in the next 50 years if we don't hunt with lead ammunition at all anymore. Mm. Well, you know, give a mouse a cookie. He's going to ask for a glass of milk. Right. I haven't read that book a hundred times. <laughs> <clears throat> but as a Second Amendment guy, I hate all of it. Yep. Because the people that are really pushing it under the guise of environmentalists, mm. uh, under, under the guise of conservation or environmentalism, um, by and large overwhelmingly, seem to use that mantra. Well, first give up your machine guns. Right. And then we want you to give up your pistols. We fought that off. Now it's, well, what would they call them? I refuse to use the term, um, but I'm going to. Assault rifles, despite the fact that we just gave grenade launchers, shotguns, rifles, javelins. Those are weapons of defense, Jim. Weapons of defense to farmers and people that live in suburban areas for defense. Oh, yes. I'll move on. I understand the conservation thing. I think in places like California, even though, man, most of California drives me bananas because they have the condor, because mm-hmm. there's not that many of them, mm-hmm. and because it appears that they are really intolerant of lead. Mm-hmm. I get it. The whole eagle thing trips me out a little bit because, as I understand it, eagles are really heavy in Alaska. And about this time of year, you want to go see eagles, go to your local landfill. Because the immature eagles are all taking flight, and they're all learning to feed, mm-hmm. and the, and the mamas haul them all. You'll see they're a legion. You'll see literally hundreds, if not thousands, of bald eagles at your dump right now. So here, and I don't we're we're killing all kinds of things with lead in Florida. Right. Here, here's and they're eating thing. at the dump. Right, their their yeah. science at face value uh, seems to prove all the points that they want. That it is is it scientifically proven that eagles die of lead poisoning yes is it scientifically proven that eventually it kills bears and wolves and people people you know cougars whatever do they die of lead poisoning from eating carrion sure right but all of these animals that were once listed on the endangered species list that are now recovering or if not recovered that they're trying to protect because of lead poisoning they all recovered while we were still shooting lead in those areas yeah. And lead, that's the thing too, man. Lead's actually pretty inert. That's part of the reason why, I mean, God knows how many, I, I, I would hate to guess how many sh- shotgun BBs I have ingested in my life. I have no doubt it's several shotgun shells full. May explain a few things, but, and not all animals have this, but apparently that once we ingest lead, I mean, lead will kill us eventually, eating lead paint and stuff like that. It's it's relatively inert, so it doesn't leach into water. It does eventually, but compared to other substances, it's much slower. I don't know why we're 
Again, I'm all for the science. I'm all for the conservation. But it needs to be legit. What impact is it having on the species? Something's dying because of X. Okay. Doesn't mean we shut it down. Otherwise, we wouldn't be driving cars. Mm Mm-hmm. Because that's how we're managing bears in the state of Florida. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> yeah, it's time to open that back up again. They filled all those tags by like, what was it, midday on opening day? I, th- I thought they made just over 24 hours, something like that. Either way, it was it was Yeah, it was very short. I kidnapped this quick. podcast in a heartbeat on bears, so let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> and then on top of that, so we got, you know, we talked about, so we talked about CWD several times. We talked about it in length a couple months ago. But now, you know, very interesting article with the title that reads, CWD doesn't kill deer. And the whole, now, do I believe, I'll go on the record and say right now, do I believe that CWD doesn't kill deer? No. I'm very certain at some point it probably does kill a deer. But the whole basis of the article was based on the fact that, you know, all the deer we test now for CWD are already dead. And those that are dead are usually because of, comorbidity they get hit by a car they get shot by a hunter that you know they're not because they found them in the middle of the woods nowhere they're just laying there dead and they test it they're not putting in that kind of effort into finding those deer they're picking them up off up off the side of the road well so they're only testing dead animals and we don't know how long it actually takes to kill a deer because we've never you know tested a live deer and then basically quarantined it and watched it die well, it, it's an issue of sampling bias. It's uh, something that we all should have experience with after the last two years. It turns out that if you test people who are showing up to the hospital for certain things, that they're going to probably test positive. So you, you have to be really careful about where you draw your sample and having a representative sample uh, of the population. And like you said, it's hard to do those long-term longitudinal studies on deer. If a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? Well, if a CWD deer lies down and dies in the woods, does it die of CWD? Right. You know? But that all goes back to, you know, you and I discussed before the podcast, all the money that's coming into funding CWD, quote unquote, research, the majority of it going to the states is going for testing and building testing sites. As as long as we continue to just attempt to test dead deer, we're only ever going to find CWD in dead deer. And until we can develop a test or we can test live deer, then we'll never really know how long it takes to kill a deer. And like we, if it takes CWD eight years to kill a white-tailed deer and we do enough research to find out that it can't transfer, transfer over to humans, then CWD effectively doesn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. Because if we can't catch it and it takes eight years to kill a deer, unless that deer is coming out of the womb, you're still shooting Boone and Crockett bucks. Mm-hmm. I understand the point. Um, I'm hesitant to think that it's not something that we should be concerned about because it's been around for a long time, mm-hmm. right? Like I think they've known about it. I was, I was, I was better with the dates earlier. They've known about it since the 40s or 60s. We've been testing in Florida, though not very often because I think hunters have to voluntarily drag the deer in since like the 1980s. Or and something. they test roadkill. Yeah. You're right. They're testing roadkill. I don't think you're going to come up with a live test. I think they have to test brain tissue. Yep. And, you know, they're not very bright as it is. You could poke a hole in their head and really draw a little brain tissue. I think most deer are probably not going to endure the experience well. Maybe there's another way to test for it. I don't know. But I think you might be able to pull a spinal tap because it's in that's all a good neurological point. tissues. No, that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, See, right. so, <clears throat> so this could be 
Wicked expensive, I imagine. Oh, I'd imagine. But if the money the state was getting to go to research was specifically slotted to test live deer mm-hmm. it, through a spinal tap, then that's what the money has to go to. But that's not where the money's going to. It's it's, it's follow the money. I think. All right. Don't because I, I, I don't. I'll be. I do not know. But I, my bias is heavily going to fall to CWD. CWD is something we should be concerned about. I think we should be concerned about it because things like this have a way of mutating over time. And whether or not, I don't think it's going to annihilate the deer population because a CWD positive deer doesn't really start to generate problematic symptoms for a long time. And they're still viable. They reproduce. They'll just be making all kinds of deer with CWD. But in all that, when we start talking and finding reasons to say, that's not something to worry about. I, that just it rings false. Like I said, because it is something we know is spreading, right? Where places where it wasn't present and it shows up, it doesn't stay scant. It starts to become more and more and more prevalent. But I'll also address your thing about what you mentioned about sampling bias. How many guys are taking the deer to be CWD tested now in Florida? Probably very few. Mm-hmm. Have a couple of cases show up. And more deer get dropped off. But again, what does it take to get the majority of CWD funding to test oh, yeah. more so deer? COVID model. Is, Everybody's is, got COVID. Ring me <clears> up, baby. Yeah, right. Yeah. Is to, is to that, that's right. what I was saying earlier. Well, and you know, I would I would always be very skeptical of uh, any kind of prion disease and meat safety. Get into that mic real quick. There J- you go. Just coming out of the animal sciences world, uh, you know, and uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, uh, BSE, mad cow. Mad disease. cow. Yeah, um, you know, being also a, a very similar prion disease that attacks the nervous system of the uh, animal um, and the safety practices in place for meat safety. Um, you know, the hunters don't have FDA meat safety practices in place that's going to stop them from eating a deer that might exhibit CWD. Now, you really don't get it unless you get into a neurological material, uh, which is why we cut out the vertebral process after like 24 months of age in cattle which is why we try to get them on the hook somewhere between 18 and 24 months. You, you're using words you now have to describe. Uh, vertebral process? Uh, it, you know, when you get a T-bone steak, mm-hmm. it's got the little notch in the top. Bingo. That's where the spinal cord runs down. So after 24 months, you go from having a T-bone steak to an I-bone steak because they have to cut the top of that T out because it's been in contact with uh, uh, neurological materials. Um, so, you know, I know we have those in, in place in the animal uh, sciences world for food safety, uh, those, you know, safeguards. Uh, so, you know, if there's a CWD epidemic in the deer world and I'm, I'm, you're probably way more versed in this than me. This is just my perspective coming from cattle. Um, you know, I'd be concerned for, you know, consumption's sake, you know, trying to keep that as low in the population as possible, because even if it's a one in a million chance that you get a crossover, uh, and you can get it in, uh, I think from cleaning, without gloves and getting mm-hmm. in your cuts on your fingers. Um, uh, even if there's one in a million cases, it, it's the worst case scenario because uh, I believe there is some data that supports crossover from cows to people and leads to uh, Crutchfeld-Jacobson's disease. Uh, so, you know, which is a brain deterioration disease that presents kind of like dementia, like Matt Cowan people. So, um, yeah, you know, I think I'd you're right. Be, That's why they stopped it, man. I mean, right. Yeah. And well, the, the, that's one of the things, I mean, well, from the I, things I, I've read, I think that the, I hate to see, I'm not going to, the word consensus isn't right because there's no subtle science on it, but I think that most folks 
when they're following the hunch, I mean, people that are way smarter than, than we are, they think a lot of this all originated with scrapey, mm-hmm. right? It came from sheep and somehow mm-hmm. from sheep transferred over to cows. Mm-hmm. And we don't know if it came from cattle into deer or how it got into deer, mm-hmm. but it's all very similar. And then it all seems to be related to kudu, which is a the human version of it that um, some folks over in Indonesia, um, I'm going to say Indonesia, I forget, I forget which island it is, but a group of cannibals that ritualistically ate each other, right? Not, I mean, they, they did it actually as a, as a thing to honor each other, but uh, maybe it's Borneo or whatever. Also, those guys are all ripped up with it, you know, because mm. so, but it's all similar to, what's Mad Cow's real name? Uh, Bovine Spongebob Foreman. My man. I love smart people. <laughs> I, I, I might have botched that a little bit. I'm a long time out of school at this point, so that's a lot try, of letters. Trying to pull it back, pull it back. But you know, I think the real moral of the story is uh, like the Kudu tribe or whatever. Uh, don't eat your friends. Yeah, right. <laughs> the the Kudu is what they call Mad Cow and, uh, and Mad people, people Disease. Mad People Disease. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, don't eat your friends. That's the moral of the story. So you know, guys, I'm gonna hike out of here when we're done, and I'll send rescue, but <laughs> won't hang out too long after. But that yeah. all, and the, you know, there's actually research out there showing now that there are potentially deer that are resistant to the prion, and the issue being that <clears throat> the number one cure for CWD right now, when you find CWD, is kill them all. Mm-hmm. Well, if we so continue to kill them all, we'll never have a resistant strain right. of deer. And how many of those deer are resistant to begin with? To clarify, you're talking about killing the whole deer herd, not just killing the infected animal. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, then the ones that surround it that may have exhibited some sort of resistance would now be eradicated from the population. The first thing that historically states have done every time they find CWD in a county is mm-hmm. they open up an extended season to kill them all. Oh, yeah. Kills everything you see. I think it was like in 2004 or something like that. They found a cow in Seattle with mad cow disease, and they called it the uh, cow that stole Christmas because it was uh, on Christmas they found this cow. And, uh, yep, same scenario. Everything went into a hole. You know? Right. But <clears throat> I don't know, man. I, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that CWD isn't a problem. I'm just saying that. I think we've reached a point now after so many years, God knows how long we we've had um, CWD because we found it, like you said, way back when, but why did we find it then? Why did we start testing then? And how long did it exist before we started testing in the first place? Right. So how long has this disease been here? Um, And there's a lot of research that we aren't doing because of the way Mm -hmm. My personal opinion is because of the way it's being funded. Right. No, I mean, there's uh, funding. It creates a, a huge incentive, and it often creates perverse incentives. I'm, give a bureaucracy money, they're going to find a way to, to claim it. If yep. you put a bounty on CWD deer, they're going to find some. And, and, you know, it's just, are you getting the sampling bias? I think probably longitudinal study would be a lot better, a live longitudinal study. But how would you do that? Radio collar them? I don't know. We are, I think that well, radio collaring would be the worst way to do that, I would believe, because you're now taking a deer that has CWD and introducing it back into a population. I would think you'd have to like pin a deer. Well, if right? you're trying to study the effects in, in the population, but yeah, if you're just trying to observe it through its life and the, the process of the disease. Yeah, the first thing we got to figure out is how long it actually takes to kill a deer. Mm. I don't even know, man. I, you know what? I, I think about all this stuff when it comes down to the practical side. It all comes down to what you eat it. And nope. I think that if somebody said, this is a giant plate of CWD deer, I'd probably be like, ah. But you know what? Pass me the vegetables. 
Nah, I probably wouldn't. No. I, I get, I'd probably, you know, actually, you're kind of right. I guess it depends on what mood I'm in. But I got plenty of other alternatives. So that, right. that's part of where my attitude comes from. And then, but it, here's how I'd, re, I know how I would really address it. It probably doesn't have it. I'm not going to get it tested. <laughs> right. Now, if, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, yeah. But well, yeah. Uh, say they find CWD in middle Georgia, you going to start getting all your deer tested? Like I said. Right. In fact, not only will I probably not get my deer tested, I probably will still continue to eat neck roasts. Well, they should just sell still. it in uh, the Bass Pro Shop, little test kits or something, kind of like COVID. You just walk into CVS, pick you up a test right. kit. Right. No, the, the thing is, is I, I do believe we are reaching a turning point in CWD research because now more people are beginning to ask questions. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really good thing that we question the science we have because it's going to cause us to further develop the science at hand. Right. <clears throat> so we, what we do, I think we need to learn more about CWD, mm. not try to, we have to try to control it. That is like bottom line. But at the same time, we have to try and learn more about it. So we know how to better control it. Or in the end, we may find out we don't actually need to control it at all. It's just a natural process. And that would be, I wouldn't say the best outcome. The best outcome would be the way we could find a way to get rid of it and mm-hmm. still be able to hunt deer. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's having your cake and eating it too. Well, you know, I mean, the best way to identify it is, uh, you know, watch the animals gate on the way in, at least in cattle, you know, when walking back and forth, if there's a suspected one and they have issues coordinating their quarters. Now I know you said a lot of times people mistake like a, a car hit deer that got up and run off with a broke back leg or something as having CWD. But you know, uh, an animal that's crippled on one quarter versus one that can't coordinate how to walk with his four legs would have a different gait if you spend a lot of time watching animals walk. Yeah, right. I, know. I think it's kind of funny about the length of time. How many four-year-old deer that aren't raised in a pen get killed in Florida? They're pretty damn rare, man. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, year and a half, wham! So. Well, <laughs> All right, so, well, but that that's kind of what I was getting at. Unless the deer comes out of the womb with CWD, the majority—I would say probably the overwhelming majority of the whitetail, quote unquote, mature whitetail bucks you see killed across the U.S. three to four years old max. There are there is and it's, it's private and, land deer, uh, big right. swaths of farms that we have very few of in Florida. They're moving too much, right? Mm-hmm. In Florida, that's definitely not the case. Two-year-old, three a three-year-old deer in Florida is a, probably a daggum monster, yeah. but they don't exist as prevalent on public land as they do. I'm sure you could find plenty of pu- uh, private land out there with that on there, but. You have to have a big piece, though, because uh, you, you run into the problem. If I don't shoot them, my neighbor will. And if that's your frame of mind, you're that neighbor, you know? Well, yeah. I, you know, you presented me with an awesome segue. I'm not going to miss this opportunity. Uh, so I've got Jim in here with me tonight. Good evening. <laughs> and then I have Vincent howdy, from howdy. Whitetail Properties. And we're talking the acquisition of private land. Yes, so, Vincent, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got involved with Whitetail Properties and uh, kind of what Whitetail Properties does. So, the shortest elevator speech I can give is <clears throat> we sell land. So, we sell land for sellers and we sell land to buyers. And, uh, you know, I'm big about uh, private land. I-, I love private land. I think private land ownership is a fundamental American right. And it's a lot of what a lot of us drive through through our adult lives, even if it's, you know, just owning our own house. But uh, a lot of us, you know, especially if we're already inclined to be in the outdoors, really want to carry that on into ownership. 
so we can own a part of that outdoors. Um, you know, conservationism uh, being a big part of that conservationism. Um, you know, uh, it's just you know I grew up fishing public waterways and you know running around public lands and you know you just always want a little piece of that for yourself to to hold and protect especially as um we get more and more boxed in on public land and it's more and more used and it's getting more and more removed from the general public you know uh it's always nice to have a piece of land of your own to go to ground on make sure that you can and i I mean that in terms of like so you always have a place to hunt uh though we do get a quite a few requests from the survivalists you know and they literally want a piece of land to go to ground on but you know uh I've gotten a lot of those lately, but, uh, you know, we do that and we sell land to anybody who wants to buy land for any use or any purpose. Um, you know, and it's my ambition that by selling land to private owners and keeping it in private ownership, that they'll develop a connection and a love for that piece of land that will keep it out of development longer. I'm not anti-development in the way that things do get developed and sometimes that needs to happen so but this is my stance on conservationism i want to see the swamp stay the swamp i want to see the woods stay the woods i want to see cypress domes all over the florida countryside for hundreds of hundreds of years thousands of years after this and uh you know it's tough with how quick development moves so you know uh, it's definitely an ambition of mine too to, to buy up as much land as I can personally, um, and that's kind of how I got into this. So I'm a I'm a life member of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, which is a big um, proponent. Yes. Of public land. Yes. And ironically, do a fair amount in the real estate world myself as okay. a more of an investor. And it's interesting because I spend a lot of time in that, and uh, I got a good buddy of mine who owns a ranch in Montana. And it's interesting. This is just more of a, a, a commentary on people, mm-hmm. because uh, in Florida, especially, we have uh, our population is going up by about three hundred thousand people a year. A lot of people say three hundred thousand people are moving here. That's not true. A lot of people are born here, and our birth rate still exceeds our death rate. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people moving here. Oh yeah, you know. And there's uh, this state has gotten so small since I was ten. Right. Well, there's ac- there's actually nothing wrong with that. Right, because if you want to leave here, you can leave here. Mm. So if you want to go to Montana or Wyoming or Utah or Nebraska, you are free there. to do so. I know. I'm, I agree. Right. I'm I'm a warm weather fellow fellow, but I, I I I find it interesting the and I'm a man of many hypocrisies for people that right now are all of a sudden starting to turn purple because um, as a man that loves public land and think it's important, mm-hmm. if you're asking me which side of the coin do we have to err on private land ownership or public land ownership? I will always advocate for, for private. There's a lot of people right now that say, Oh my God, you turn coat. No, it has to be that way. And the, the reason for is bad actors in government. Yeah. Right? Uh, I'm so, the same. I'm highly skeptical. However, I am very much, and I've spent hours working on stuff like this, like, once you make it public, especially in a place like Florida, mm-hmm. it's hands off forever because we're, we're going to already have all the private development. 100% agree. Yeah. But I don't think there's anything wrong. And I think there's an awful lot of private landowners, especially in our ilk, that once they get that real estate, mm. 
spend inordinate amounts of cash trying to make it the best habitat possible. Yes. And when we talk about that the last crop is uh, always rooftops, that's true too. Mm-hmm. Except overwhelmingly the majority of the folks that are selling that land, they, it was never public in the first place. Yes. Right? That doesn't mean that you didn't have a chance to go out and hunt your buddy's farm and things like that if you were in the club. But if you were outside of the club, the rules were still stay the fuck off. Right. <laughs> right? Well, so, so and it really changing. A hundred percent. And I agree to that. Uh, when it comes to, to public land, public land is a great resource to the general public. And, uh, you know, I think more and more of that should be gained and made available as long as they're not using the purchase of public land to push rural uh, people into the cities. And then, you know, because it seems like we're just centralizing more. And there, there's a big push lately for people to get out of the cities and back into the country. And that just makes more cities <laughs> just yeah, differently. No, it just makes them in different locations sometimes. But they try to they try to spread out as much as they can. If all you can afford is five acres, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I live on five acres, and uh, it's a great five acres to be on. I have a great porch I can walk out on, and you know it, it's it's awesome. But um, you know, definitely keeping public land open is it's a big part of an American right too for those that are you know still working their way to the property dream to be able to access that that's where a lot of us cut our teeth in hunting and fishing is on public waterways and public hunting land uh and that's what drives that passion for land ownership so something you kind of touched on vincent and you touched on as well jim is when we look at conservation it's easy to think oh public land that's where it has to happen the state has to do it it's all state funded. Mm. This happens here. They built uh, a refuge for um, you name it, animal, and they're going to keep it safe on that public land. And we can go hike there or hunt there or whatever. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> across the U.S., there's a, quite a bit of public land. We got 14 million acres right here in the state of Florida. Mm. And most of it's underwater. <laughs> But that's the prettiest part of it, some of it sometimes, you know, deep in that swamp. Yes. But conservation does not happen, truly happen, without private landowners. Yes. Yeah, well, I don't think that's... If if we only practice conservation on public lands, that'd be it, that we wouldn't have stuff to hunt anymore. I I can tell you 100% there's no better piece of managed property than one that is privately owned by a well-educated deer hunter in terms of generating good deer habitat. I sold an amazing 90 acre uh, turkey hunting piece. I mean, they had hog too, hog all over the place. If you love to shoot hog, it was great. It was about, um, it was 90 acres. It was in two parcels, uh, 40 and 50. And it had islands of dry in the middle of a cypress slough that flowed out to Jumper Creek. This is out here in uh, Sumter County. I I know Jumper Creek. Yeah, I do too. (laughs) So this was probably a click to the creek if you were to cut across the public land it was backed against state land on three sides which is you know the uh that is the pinnacle of private land ownership everybody wants the biggest piece they can find surrounded by state land yours for 5.7 million dollars yeah (laughs) everybody i'll tell you what it sold for everybody always wants 40 acres that hunts like four thousand. and if you're surrounded by state on three sides is especially if you're allowed to also hunt the state it's great um, now this place, it had, uh, islands of dry land of what we call an, and, you know, as cowboys, we called them islands too, over mm-hmm. there on that Island. And people would be like, what Island? We're on the land. 
but they're just, you know, it's maybe got a foot of more elevation than everything else around it. So it's dry. And he had an island called Turkey Island, very fittingly. And you had to uh, get in a little, uh, you had to cross the slough in the gator to get out there. And then on the end of Turkey Island, you can jump. He had a rope run across the other side of the slough into a canoe and pull yourself out to Long Island. Uh, it was just a Long Island, not named after New York. Um, and it, the marriage of the dry land with the swamp was just quintessential Florida property. And a lot of what I get people is like, you know, I want 100 acres. I want it to be all dry. And I'll take them to see 100 acres or something that's all dry up on a sand ridge. And it's, well, where's all the wildlife? Where's all the where's all the pretty oak trees? Where's so all of, you know, oak trees like to live around the edges of the wetland. You know, I have huge live oaks in my yard right next to the back acre that floods all four months of the summer while we're dumping an inch of rain a year. But, you know, it's important to have that kind of biodiversity, that eco ecological diversity on a piece of property to hold animals. They don't want to just hang out in a monocult of pines and a sand ridge. They, and there's nothing wrong with having that, but you want to have places of, you know, with water, wetness, creeks, maybe a little bit of terrain. Uh, and I really prefer just me. I, I love the swamp. So I really prefer to be off in that swamp. And that beautiful uh, place came with a cabin. It had a pole barn with three RV hookups, a full metal shop with like a four inch thick concrete slab on it and it sold for $770,000 the day it went on the market instantly like that. Yeah. I was all in until 770 hit. Yeah. Oh, and it, <laughs> I, actually I'm glad you told me 770 cuz if you said it was like 520 I'd be like oh. <laughs> oh cuz I'm I'm an old man I got, my, house, I got, my house is paid for. I got 40 acres in the same area. Uh you know, I actually sent out a, I, I, later. Okay, I was gonna say we, so we're big on direct marketing. So I sent out yeah. adjacent mailers, yeah. and I just got forty acres for uh, four thirty nine. And with area. the pole barn and the cabin, though, no, no, but it does have a power pole on there, so it's ready yeah. to go for a deer camp. You, we need to. No, pull. man, I'm looking for a. I'm, I'm looking for a bunker. I'm looking to. <laughs> my kids are nineteen and twenty, and as soon as they're gone. We got to bleep that price out, Jim. You know, oh, you know. Okay. I heard there's some missile silos for sale out west. I'd love to own one of those. No, cool. no, I mean, I, no, no. Like you said, too cold. I uh, when I think about moving north and moving south, I think about like north is Port St. Joe, and south is Orlando. Yeah, because really, if you go much south, south, if you go much further south than Kissimmee, you're really no longer in Florida. You're approaching New York. I don't know, man. Well, I tell you, you know. So, I, I've been commuting back and forth to Tampa, you know, twice a week these last few weeks, and I I choose to take the back roads and I drive through like Green Swamp and yeah. all that. Oh, it's it's absolutely that to me. Seeing that stuff is Florida, and then you look at those the those big vast expanses of Florida prairie with that cypress head out in the middle and the big tall palm trees and all that. Oh, you love it. That's Florida, man. My, my wife thought the funniest thing was seeing cows standing under palm trees when she moved down here. She's from North Carolina, so they don't have palm trees. And I never noticed it until she pointed it out. I was like, that's what's wrong with this state. There's no palm trees. I knew it felt weird. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's 100% fact that, you know, if Deseret did not own their ranch, DCC, Deseret Cattle and Citrus, right there in Central Florida, it's, uh, Brevard, uh, it's Brevard Orange and... Uh, Osceola. Osceola. Yeah, Brevard Orange and Osceola. Oh, it's great. But, you know, it, it, it would have been track built years and years and years ago. So, you know, I'm thankful that they're there. And, you know, uh, it's it's owned by the Mormon Church. But they mm -hmm. do pay taxes on all of it. They don't take tax shelter on any of it. But, I, I, I actually interned out there. It's a 
gorgeous ranch. It's, in my opinion, the prettiest part of Florida is owned by that ranch. That that goes back into what I said earlier, where conservation doesn't happen without private land ownership mm-hmm. as a whole, right? They have conservation, one of the state's largest wood stork rookeries. I'll throw that in there. That's them in the Seminole County dump. Yeah, that's not Jim's neighborhood, all those daggum wood storks you got in there. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but you, you can't. You can't look at conservation and say it's all public land with the in in the whole grand scheme mm-hmm. of things, the majority of what we have in the US is all privately owned. We have to have private landowners uh committed to keeping the resources we have or we wouldn't have what we have. Well that, it's funny, a lot of our WMAs you get into you get into Charles whole, Ace Bronson. I, that's exactly what yeah, I was thinking. Charles H. Bronson. Still a work cattle ranch, right? Yeah. That's exactly the property I was mm. thinking of. And and it's hard. Close it's, the gate behind you. Yep. Those are that it's literally so says on all the gates. You gotta close them behind you. And shoot, they made steps up and over some of the dang cattle fences. Is, so you don't is have that to go Babcock Ranch. That's down south. Yeah, yeah. It, Bronson's here Fort in Central Bronson, Florida. Yeah. Um east. Southeast of Orlando. Yeah, I spend more time on Christmas. the water than uh, walking the woods. To be well, honest, I, I definitely well, we want to do another that. small game hunt there. You got to oh, come yeah. out and join us. That's a such a beautiful. That is the epitome of like Florida woods. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I have. It's it's right there. off a of, right off a of puzzle lake. Well, I, I grew up. Okay, I think I know where that is. It's on St. John's. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So I, I grew up on a. Well, that's why I knew where it was because on St. John's, I grew up in Brevard, uh, on the Indian River Lagoon. And on the St. John's there between Point Set and Winder. So uh, that's mostly where I ran as a kid. And, uh, you know, if you ask some of the cowboys that I worked with, they consider everything north of 70 to be the north. You know, I have a buddy who calls everybody north of 70 a Yankee. Uh, Ironically, he works at uh, Bronson's now, which is north of 70. It's out there on uh, Lake Cypress. Lake Cypress, yeah. Uh, Where Wild Florida is, they're right there. Before you pull in, you can see the, the loading chute when you take that turn to go down to the lake. But, uh, yeah, that's also a gorgeous ranch. And, uh, you know, um, I'm thankful there are some of these bigger family-owned cattle ranches that have held out as long as they are have because um, there are certainly uh, incentives to sell parts, bits and parts. And I think they do as defensively as they can. Uh, I know that there's some eminent domain proceedings that can happen in terms of, uh, like, the Taylor Creek Reservoir and stuff like that for uh, water for the city of Orlando and that the ranch had to work through some of that. But, I mean, they're doing the best they can to, to, to keep a running operation, as far as I know. From the outside appearances, it's not like I'm sitting on their board meetings. Um, but growing up in the area, to keep to keep as, you know, running ranch up and going and, and accommodate the massive influx of people that we have had. Uh, you have to look a little bit down the road to kind of parry some of these advances that will be put on you. Um, and a lot of that is why I, you know, want more and more land as I go forth as well, you know. I lease a lot of land for cows right now. Well, I wouldn't say a lot. I only have sixty cows, but you know. You yourself, you're you're a cattleman. Yeah, I, I, so I'll, I'll be interested. Uh, maybe all right. Well, I've been going a little bit in the podcast as a guy that has bought cows, right for private consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, and my um, my grandfather on my mother's side was a cattleman, mm-hmm. dairy, and unfortunately, blight wiped him out about World War Two. He went into the army like everybody else, and on and on. But I, um, I hold on to that. So I got an interest, man. How's a how's a guy? How do you go about that? Just if you can give a less than five minute version of it. 
Jim, this is this is a genuine cowboy, <laughs> genuine yeah. Florida cowboy. I would I wouldn't claim all that. I certainly got paid to do it, but I wasn't the best at it. You know, I got in that game way too late. You know, uh, no, I worked, I worked as a kid. I worked dairy farms. It's different. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm I've been around. You know, I've been stepped on. Mm. You know, all, all the good shit, right? Hazed and uh, working on there, but I am I, um, I am curious as how one goes about finding somebody who's willing to lease the land or, or perhaps throw your cattle in with their cattle, whatever it takes. So it is very difficult because there are far more cattlemen than there are leases available in the state. And we That's have far more cattle, uh, you know, cattle than, than land. Um, so it's tough. So right now I'm basically placeholding for tax breaks on, you know, potential commercial development properties. So I got neighborhoods on three sides of my pastures anyways, which is a, it can be a help and a hindrance. I wish I didn't. But, you know, people see a calf laying down. I'll get a phone call. There's an abandoned calf. I was like, well, you know, I said, you drop your kids off at daycare at the beginning of the day? Yeah. I said, so she, she'll come back and get it when she wants to. You know, she's just off eating grass somewhere. It's not abandoned. Is she going to let it go hungry? No. I mean, every <clears throat> once in a while, you, you'll have like a heifer or a two-year-old uh, heifer, doby cow, or calf rather. And, uh you have to bottle feed it, but it, it's not often. Um, Let me ask you, I'll ask you a direct dumb question, What it's like raising cows in a fishbowl. You, you, you've got the, you've got the grass, which mm-hmm. is the hardest thing to come by, right? Uh, yeah, it's limited. It's limited because our grass stops growing probably around December. It's really slows down in October, it turns off around December and it doesn't come back until we get our steady rains. You can almost set your watch by June 15th and it's where well, I'm at. I, I'll make it, let's, let's, so they don't bog down the podcast my own personal interest. Let's, Mm-hmm. I'd like to chat with you about that afterwards. Yeah. You know, even if it's only a handful of kids. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a lot of my story of how I got into land because Whitetail doesn't make it a habit of hiring realtors and trying to teach them how to be the authentic article. They want real Floridians to sell Florida land, and they already have to have a knowledge, love, and appreciation for it through, you know, a lifetime served in the outdoors. So, you know, I grew up fishing. I always say you're either born a fisherman who tries to hunt or born a hunter that tries to fish. I grew up and my dad was a wild man. He B. Was a, I'm, yeah, I'm B too. <laughs> I, 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 I'm A. Because, I mean, when I told you my dad jumped into Panama. He jumped into Panama with a fishing pole and caught peacocks out of the Amazon. And he said before he could stop them or take any pictures, and the local Indian tribe walked up and cleaned all the fish and handed it to him and had his hand out because he wanted money because that's what they do when they get tourists to come in. They clean their fish and they get paid for it. It's kind of like the guys in Orlando that wash your windshield. Yeah, yeah, At yeah. the stoplight. You're like, wait, money. but I didn't want, I didn't want, you know. <laughs> so, but uh, anyways, you know, dad was wild about fishing and he was, uh, he had his ranger tab. He was 82nd Airborne. And, uh, you know, I grew up wading through rim ditches and across the flats with my fishing pole above my head. And I know you can't see me on the radio, but the Phelpses are a short breed of people. I'm only like five foot four. So at, you know, six, seven, eight years old, when dad's taking me on these grand misadventures that just shaped my entire life. I mean, I was maybe three feet tall. So, you know, he's wading waist deep and I'm tiptoeing with my nose out of the water and my fishing pole above my head. And he's picking me up by the back of, you know, my, my waders or my shorts or whatever. And it was, it was just a great way. You know, I mean, we did that all the time. And if it was a full moon night, dad was not home because he fished every full moon night. And this is before we could even afford a boat, you know, and he would wade in off of the causeways onto the flats in the, in the Indian river and go red fishing and night fishing. And he's got one of the biggest gator trout I've seen hung up in his office. Um, anyways, yeah, so that's just kind of how 
I cut my teeth on the whole thing. And, and, you know, eventually, you know, dad's dream of owning land was to live on the Indian river. We grew up in Rockledge and he grew up, um, uh, in a neighborhood out there on uh, miracle way. The, the real prime real estate in that area for, especially for fishermen was to have a house on the river and you could put your flats boat on a lift and you could walk out after work and jump in your boat and go ahead and do that. So, you know, I actually have made it a point, especially given my background that I really try to focus and specialize in waterfront land because it's what I have the most depth in. Um, and it can be difficult because a lot of anything that's waterfront that can be developed has been developed. So if you're buying vacant waterfront land, there's going to be hurdles to development and you have to brace yourself for that, but they're not making any more of it. And if there's already a house on it, it's going to cost a lot. Um, especially in the recent housing market, because then you're really blending recreational use. Uh, you know, your want to be on the water with also housing. So, uh, but it, it was great. He made it to river road and I grew up and before I could drive a car, he'd be like, get out of the house, go take the boat. You know, and I just walk down to the boat and jump in the boat and off I'd go and I'd go hang out on the spoil islands and start fires and survivor, uh, had come out at the time with Tom Hanks. So we'd run around like little wild men and, you know, we'd adopt a buoy or a volleyball or something to make Wilson. And, you know, it was great. We <laughs> we were out there with flashlights and sharpened palm frond sticks trying to stab stingrays in the middle of the night at two in the morning. You know, <laughs> it was a good time. It was, it was a great childhood. Couldn't ask for a better one. Man, it sounds, sounds a lot like the childhood I had just, just growing up, just trying to be a wild man. <laughs> yeah, a wild instance. man in a populated place. I, I don't think I put on shoes until I was 14. <laughs> I do, man. I, I, I feel bad for people. I mean, my own kids, I tried to duplicate it, but this wasn't the same. <clears throat> if you didn't grow up in a rural area where you had a chance to run around, just and literally just run around where your parents were like, bye, you missed out. You know, the, the whole, I, again, a kidnapped podcast. We are way too protective of our children. These oh days. My God. I know we're all worried about the bad man and shit, but. Dude, I didn't even have a cell phone. They used to let me go, like, and I would just disappear with the boat. I actually backed over my friend one morning. We were wakeboarding before school, and I damn near cut his hand off. He got a he got a cut on his hand that he had to have stitched up. But it, okay, to preface this, it as, was, as old as I am, it was impossible to have a cell phone when I was a kid. Yeah, they didn't exist, Dude, or, or or they weighed about thirty five pounds, and you had to carry the battery and shit with you. you know, that, but that was like nineteen eighty seven. I was already an old teenager by then, but. To preface this pre-school wakeboard sesh that we were getting in on, sesh. like we we lived wakeboarding through high school because we had a ski boat, we had a uh, a Sea Ray bow rider, and it was not a wakeboard boat in the least. I begged Dad for years for a wakeboard tower. I still don't have one, and uh, you know, in a couple of years, you'll probably see me doing backflips on Lake Panasofsky. But uh, behind the Ginu, uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm I'm gonna get me an aeronautique. It's been on my list since I was like 16 years. One day I'll grow up and have an aeronautique so I can finally land that backflip. Because I'll get like three quarters of the flip, but I can't get the board all the way around me. I get on my knees because uh, you have to have a tower. So when you hit the wake, the rope pulls you up. Yeah. Versus if you're tied to the toe point on the back for like skiing, it'll pull you back down. But uh, anyways, you know, uh, I needed to preface all this. It was like, bro, it was like 38 degrees outside when we were wakeboarding. We did not care. So we were like borderline her hypothermic uh, uh, and the, the rope come off the boat and started drifting away because the boat was kind of like idling and neutral and kind of floating and uh the rope had come off those little cheesy rope pulls that they keep on the back of those ski boats and started drifting away and i said hey 
jump off and get that rope for me. And he says, okay, he's got the wakeboard on his feet. So he goes to jump and I said, "Never mind, I'll get it. And I put it in reverse at the same time that he jumped off and he Mm. jumped right until I was backing up. And I freaked out when I seen him bleeding. I thought I cut his hand off. I was so scared. And it just it was like four or five stitches. That's two weeks in a row we're talking about people getting whacked by boat props. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I'm super cautious about it. Uh, after that, like, you know, we were out in the summer in a much warmer climate. I had a buddy, like, think it was cool boat etiquette to, like, jump off the boat while I was on a plane because he thought it'd be a fun thing. We were in high school. We were yeah, been, uh, uh, he was done that. that. Yeah. Dude, but Once? I, I was Mr. Boat Safety after that because I was like, I'm the captain, not on my boat, never again. You do that again. I said, what if I didn't notice you jump off? I'll oh. be 10 miles down the river and you're swimming without a life jacket in the middle of the ICW in the channel. I, I wish I could tell you we didn't purpose do that yeah, at one point, once. but yeah, it happens. Dude, you think it. you're SEAL Team Six, and yeah, was, yeah, but and you do it two or three times, and then you realize you're not, and that hurts. And well, you know, after yeah. I realized how close I was taking off my buddy's hand with the prop, like I never messed with boats. Yeah, I respected that boat after that, and that's how kids learn. You know, we're talking about blanketing these kids and too much safety. Like I almost had a catastrophic accident that taught me a lifelong lesson to respect the boat prop in the back area around a boat. It took me a long time before I'd approach a boat from the back in the water. No, you know, I'd always, is it a neutral? <laughs> yep. Go ahead. So, Vincent, tell me, what is Whitetail Properties? So, Whitetail Properties, we're a national brokerage based out of Pittsfield, Illinois. That's where they started at. Um, it was started by Dan Perez. And, you know, there's a couple other guys, some of them pretty insta-famous, like uh, Pete Alfonso. I think I said that right. I follow him on Instagram too. Um, but uh man, he was crushing it this past season. He got a bunch of good stuff. But um, you know, we're we're based out of Pittsfield, Illinois. We're a national brokerage. Um, and we have agents and I, I think we're up to thirty eight states now. We've been out for nineteen or twenty years. You know, it started on outdoor TV with uh Dan Perez being filmed by Jeff Evans, who's the current CEO. And um you know, they were filming whitetail deer hunts and they really segued that into that private land ownership like we were talking about and land management. And it's, you know, and um, a lot of our agents go to um, management courses and, you know, I've, like I've taken control burn courses and stuff. But to get down to it, you know, we got agents in every state and uh, almost every state and agents get a territory, which is unique with us. I mean, it's a really great company to be a part of because we have protected sales territories. Um, and that fosters a sense of teamwork inside the company. So, um, and a lot of other brokerages, anyone can sell properties or houses anywhere and you're competing against your, some of your own office mates inside your brokerage here. We, you know, uh, if I get a call and somebody's interested in something in Levy, I call, uh, Cody Worley north of me and, you know, I, I hand it off to him and I try to, you know, uh, get that customer, accustomed to the fact that you know i'm not i'm not blowing you off but this is really our guy up there and he grew up around there just like i said they really put a lot of capital in finding the genuine article and the local guy uh that knows what he's doing and and has been all over that land and uh you know so i they're he's better suited for selling land in levy than i am i grew up in central florida um mostly brevard and south Volusia, but you know i've been to every spring in florida that was a big thing my dad did we'd go to a different spring every weekend so i've been all over the state and you know i lived and worked down south in glades county for a while so 
I've been pretty much anywhere on the peninsula. I'm sorry to the panhandle guys, but I always considered that Alabama when I grew up. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, in, in some of our agents up there are even licensed in two states. Our team leader uh, is licensed in Alabama and Florida, and he's a great guy. And, uh, well, you know, so we have this whole sense of, of teamwork and camaraderie, and it really makes us uh, – you know, almost a monolith in the market because we can cover our areas incredibly well and we have incredibly precise knowledge of the local area that we're selling and we're selling it authentically and genuinely. So when people want to hunt or fish that area, nobody knows that area as an agent better than us because we don't make realtors outdoorsmen. We make outdoorsmen realtors. So we're the best suited in the market in terms of buying recreational outdoor properties. Now in Florida, Land ownership is smaller than out west. I have a bunch of guys that can't wrap their head around the conversion rate. You know, I sold a thousand acres in, in Kansas. So I want to buy a thousand acres in Florida. I'm like, well, you're gonna have to sell ten thousand acres in Kansas then. You know, uh, just just to be blunt, I'll put a little bit nicer than that. But you know, mm. it, it, it's <clears throat> so I I was not exposed to whitetail properties upon meeting you. I've heard about it before. I've seen it, their ads right. and it. it Correct me if I'm wrong, but it strikes me as this is not the company you turn to when you want to buy a house. This is the company you turn to when you want to buy a piece of hunting property or a a big tract of land because, you know, this is not uh, Susie the realtor that has this job or Sam the realtor who's going to sell you your house or more concerned about how many bedrooms and bathrooms it has versus how diverse the ecosystem is and what kind of animals it has on it. So we do. How many acres? Yeah. So we do sell rural homes, but there's usually a good amount of acres attached to it. And, but you know, we have to adapt to our local area market being in central Florida. I have Lake County. I love Lake County. Lake County has a bunch of lakes and dad loved bass fishing. We used to fish a lot on the Indian river, but as he got older, you know, his dream boat after he got his dream house was a a Ranger Comanche. So he, he, he bought a Ranger Comanche and yeah, it is a gorgeous boat and spent most of his time, uh, you know, fishing the uh, Kissimmee Lake chain. And he'd just go to it. His thing was, I want to go to a different lake every week. So we didn't even keep a boat on the lift anymore because it was on the trailer because he got the intercoastal. He could run it in salt water if he wanted to. There's just something really weird about seeing a bass boat in salt water. I, I don't care if it's equipped for it. It just looks funny. And that guy's sitting at the water line and you got white caps at three feet going across the intercoastal. It just looks funny. But uh yeah, uh, so I love Lake County. I have Lake County. And uh, to specialize to my area, like I have pivoted, uh, especially since a lot of my experience comes as a fisherman. And hopefully one day I'll be as good a fisherman as dad is. He loved to fly fish for bass, but, you know, we'll get there later. Uh, I've pivoted towards waterfront, and I've had a lot of waterfront in the past year or so. And like I said, waterfront's difficult because if it can be developed, it's already been developed. So there's still waterfront vacant land available, but a lot of that, comes with a few development hurdles you have to overcome you got to do some wetland delineation and you may have to do mitigation where you take land out of a a mitigation bank and buy that wetland credit to offset because they have this i call air quotes no net loss to me if you have two acres of wetland and you develop one acre of wetland you've lost one acre of wetland but they look at as we saved one acre of wetland because of that wetland credit um either way that's that's how it works out you know i've always said that you know, because we're talking about private land ownership, uh, conservation, conservationism versus environmentalism. I've always said that an environmentalist is somebody who already owns their own waterfront property. 
because it's just getting there's more hurdles as we go on but it is still very doable uh you just have to factor it into your price but uh i've, I've pivoted towards um a lot towards focusing on waterfront properties because my counties and this is important because i have water all around me i have citrus hernando pasco sumter where i live in lake panasofsky uh, and i moved there because i'm right there at the uh, main intersection of i-75 and the turnpike so i-75 takes me south through um, sumter uh, hernando pasco and then uh, the turnpike takes me east through the rest of my territories yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the um, they have much water or they have much if you got waterfront land that doesn't have a house on it, there's a reason, right? Mm-hmm. Or that it's going to be expensive. And, yes, and, and you're absolutely right. And I'm, I got mixed feelings about. No, nah, I got mixed feelings about it, man. Because I, I I did inquire about a piece up in um, up in the Panhandle, at a place mm-hmm. that I don't want to mention because I don't want anybody else going there. Yep. And they're like, well, yeah, it's a, and and they said, and yeah. if you want to put a dock in, it's only about an extra million. And I went. What? And originally I was thinking in terms of wood. And it was a very mm-hmm. lengthy dock. But I was like, did you say million? And that was all the other shit that you had to buy just to get it out there. Yeah, yeah. So I actually had a property that I just sold. It was it was a really cool property, very unique. And I, I love these properties that have the old Florida feel because I'm all about blending in with the wetland. I think it provides a lot of uh, diverse ecosystem. And as long as you have enough land to stay dry on, that's really all you need to focus on. Because people say, well, I want to build a house. I said, well, you build a house here. They said, well, I want to be able to build a house anywhere. I said, how many houses are you going to build? They said, one. I said, then you can build a house here. You know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you right there real quick. Because I think that, and I am not this person. People look at a place to build a house and they're like, I want to build a house and I want to cut way too much grass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, no, I would I, rather buy a daggum place that's so full of trees the grass don't grow. Well, I tell, I tell you what, God, God waters my grass. I have, uh, you know, Bahia and uh, Bermuda, common Bermuda, and whatever else pops up in my lawn. You you saw you saw my yard in the daylight. I got weeds. Oh yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. My, mine turns brown in the winter. There goes all the crabgrass. Look pretty in the summer though. I, I live on a little more than a third of an acre in a subdivision, and um, I've been in all kinds of. I've received letters from my homeowners association. Mm-hmm. I should have kept them because I'm, I'm now at the time. I'm now at the point of my life where I'd have framed them as, as badges of pride. Uh huh. But I digress. I did that with referrals in high school. I had a referral binder. <laughs> so, <laughs> but one, uh, I, I did. I I I, I could deny that I had a for for years because again the BHA thing in the water, and I am very much a conservationist at heart. Um, I had a most schedule that was quarterly. At one point, I had a yard guy, but when that guy found that he, he unfortunately got hit in the head a bunch of times playing soccer in college and mm-hmm. collapsed and epilepsy and blah, blah blah blah. And so when all of a sudden they made my fat ass get out there in the yard, I was like, I don't like doing this. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, to keep all the chemicals and shit that it takes to have a lawn in Florida, I just said I'm not going to do that. Well, yeah, well, the animals don't, don't appreciate your lawn nearly as much as you do. No, do but if you if you want to have yeah. if you want to have a nice green plush golf course looking lawn, you're killing Florida. Oh, 100%. And, end of story. I don't want to debate it. Well, you can go ahead and, and debate it. It's just not good for Florida. the most difficult uh, part about that is, it, and people like to get on the farmers. Oh, they're over fertilizing, and it's this and not it's anymore. That. It, no, Can't. it never. No, you've seen the price of not fertilizer. Since the 80s. It's doubled. 
Price they didn't even pro- matter. They can't. Not since the 80s. Well, no, they can't. Not only can they not, they're they're economically disincentivized to over-fertilize. It's one of the highest cost of inputs on a farm is fertilizer. It's doubled in the last month. Hay price is going to be through the roof next year, so I don't even want to be around for that, but I'm going to be. Yeah, let's talk about petroleum. Ooh, never yeah, mind. but anyway, so the, the thing is, is ranches have to take soil samples because I've done them. And you have to send it into the soil lab at the university. And there's other places that do it too, but I was just sent it to the university. And they send you back a nutrient balance sheet. Yeah. That, that, by the way, that was calculated by some 22-year-old kid trying to get into grad school, man. I- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, they're getting lab experience. But, uh, you know, it, it's the homeowners that say, I want a greener lawn. And they grab a bag of Scotch green, whatever. They what? haven't checked out the cation binding capacity of their soils. They're probably overburdened with, with nutrients as it is. They, and it's all running straight into the lagoon. This they is, load that sucker full this, of nitrogen. This is what has killed the Indian River Lagoon. And I'm as hypocritical as anybody else because I grew up on it. And we had St. Augustine grass with a sprinkler system running reclaimed water because dad loved grass. He wanted a nice lawn and he had one and he maintained it. And, uh, you know, I know we weren't sending soil samples out, but I know ranchers do. And I know I've had to do it because the last thing I want to do is put a dollar in the ground more than I have to, especially when it's going to be detrimental to the environment on top of my wallet. So you're economically disincentivized to over fertilize. It doesn't help you. doesn't help the cows. And if you're past the cation binding capacity of the soil, its ability to bind free electrons, you're not going to hold those nutrients to that soil matter. You know, so it's it's just not worthwhile. But you know that brings me into the whole water quality with the Indian River Lagoon waterfront properties, especially on septic. You know, because everybody wants to point at agriculture and say it's them, and it's, it's easy to do that. But nobody wants to look at them, and then their ten thousand neighbors living on a canal, fertilizing without doing nutrient balance sheets, running their septics off into the lagoon, and realize that all these algal blooms we're having, all this red tide, all the silt out that we're having. It happens because of that, because it's just easier to have one boogeyman than it is to be like, maybe it's us. We should, there's some people we should probably try to get on the podcast again. Um, So I'm going to venture out there to say that as a hunter, even as a public land hunter, you, most of us at one point in life, they want to own a piece of public land of their, or a piece of private land of their own. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily, Dispel, if you can, the myth that it has to be thousands of acres. Like, what does what does private land ownership for your own slice of heaven really look like when it comes to good managed land? I mean, it's really all what you want to do with it. I mean, you can manifest any dream. And a lot of t- times, people uh, in first-time land ownership aren't really aware of the capabilities of what kind of machinery they need or whatever to, to, to shape the property into something that they want it to, whether that's uh, planting food plots. And, you know, prior to this, uh, short for a short spell after being a cowboy, I was uh, running a forestry mulcher, uh, and I, I did that. And that'll recapture a lot of usability in the land. I ran my mulcher for about uh, $2,000 a day, and an underbrushing will do a huge huge amount for land management uh especially in areas where you're prohibited from burning but the healthiest thing for land in florida florida is a fire dependent state uh you know the whole state used to burn coast to coast you know once every few years and when Smokey the bear came in and, and changed that idea of fire being a beneficial good to the environment it actually hurt florida uh especially with 
our extended growing seasons, we accumulate a huge brush load very quickly. And it's important to the health and the use of the land to the animals to be able to navigate through the brush. And if it's just so dense, they don't use it at all. You can't use it and they don't use it. And uh, so fire is by far the best management tool ever invented by God and not man. And it, it is an amazing thing to be able to do. But there's other ways to do that too. And, you know, that's part of my job is to, to help advise on overall land management and give them an idea of something that they can do. I mean, I even talk to people after the sale that, that want advice on um, how to better utilize their property for this or that. You know, a lot of people are, you know, in Florida, there's a lot more focus on turkey too in central Florida. Uh, we don't grow the biggest white-tailed deer in Florida. Now, I've seen some monsters. I've seen monsters on bow-only hunt clubs on Likes Brothers because they have an end-of-the-year party where they'll all bring in their mounts from that year or the previous year, and they get scored by the wildlife biologists on the ranch. And I have seen some, like, 180 Florida deer, which is just insane, but they're from hunt clubs that strictly enforce age limits on take and, you know, heavily fine. And they're all with the program, though. They're just there to enforce it. Um, you know, none of them are against that idea and letting those deer really grow out. And they kind of have the size to be able to do that. But if you get tucked in to a piece of state land which is always the holy grail for private land ownership if you can only buy 10 like i said earlier you want 10 that hunts like a thousand so if you can find something where you have you're next to a contiguous ranch or an old family uh you know uh that's held that land for a long time or up against uh state land that's hard to get to if you're far from the walk-in you know a lot of the deer that are going to range in that area i would suppose um are going to stay you know cross your land and they're going to be seen by the people that enter through the walk-in fire that's why a lot of people get success by entering from the water you come up creeks and stuff you can get deeper faster but um you know i'm not a deer hunter by any means i'll, I'll tell you i'm probably the only person on whitetail properties who's not shot a whitetail deer now I've, you know trap hogs and on the ranch and you know um i mostly hunt with a shotgun anything that flies i i, I love to shoot at but, um, you know, and that was just to extend my time on the water. But, you know, private land ownership can open your avenues to a lot of things. I've had people buy amazing hunting properties that just wanted it to be in the nature. And, you know, I've advised them, you're going to have to continue to manage it to continue to see what you see today. Uh, the hunters before you put, you know, some work in on it and it takes some work and it comes with the tractor. So there's your bush hog. You know, you're going to have to keep your open spot open if you want to keep it open and you know, if you want to see deer, you can plant, you know, if you just want to see deer and you don't even want to hunt deer, you can still plant a food plot. This episode brought to you by Kubota. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. No, but that's true. I mean, if you're going to own a couple of acres, you're probably going to need a tractor. The tractor is a necessity. And Whitetail has a partnership with John Deere. So this episode brought to you by John, John Deere. John Deere, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe blue and green, man. It's nothing but Ford and John Deere at my house. But uh, no orange, huh? <laughs> no. Kubota's are good tractors. The the farmers like the John Deere more because they're uh, more set up for precision agriculture, which is over the head of most people who are just using a tractor for land management. So it's not a bad machine. But we have a um, uh, John Deere Rewards program that we can enroll people in, uh, and and so there's a little bit of a incentive uh, to buy John Deere when you purchase land. Uh, to my understanding, you know. Um, I, I should better utilize that program to be quite honest with you. Uh, I have a John Deere, so I 
don't really need another one right now. So 55, 25 for life. I got a, you know, I think it's a net 98 horsepower tractor or something. It's a real small tractor. I pull a 15 foot bat wing with it. I use it in my own cow pastures, but, uh, it works out. It's a pretty cool tractor. Your only downfall is it doesn't have screens or a reversing fans. So if I'm mowing dog fennel, I got to blow it out like every three rounds. But, uh, so I, I got to know what is it with people that own tractors and, uh, always wanting to use them for more than what they're capable of. You, you never see a guy owns a little tractor. He's like, yeah, just cut five acres with it. No, you, you get a guy, he'll own a, like the 98 horsepower tractor. It's got a bucket on the front. He's like, yeah, no, this is, this is a cat D five. If you didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I've, I've completely replaced all the seals in my hydraulic rams on my, on my tractor. Cause I picked up a massive deadfall oak tree that got, uh, cut down i blew out the pump and everything it was already leaking but you know i was gonna put that to the test you know i'm like han solo and that tractor come on baby hold together (laughs) (laughs) or or they're taking they're taking that tractor with the uh, pull behind bush hog well and they're going exploring through palmettos and and, and oh yeah and berry and things oh, like yeah. that and then also to wonder why the radiator's leaking well that, that is, <laughs> oh, oh man buddy <laughs> i feel like I, I, have, I have destroyed my spool valve for my front end loader i've broken so many quick disconnects and the and in the the short answer to what is it with people overworking their tractor is i can't afford a bigger one yet <laughs> I, feel, I feel like uh, but i'm like, doing little tractor big dreams i feel like i'm putting my dad on the spot without him being in the room because he is he is definitely the one to go you know at one point he just had a finished mower but he treated that sucker like a bush hog oh yeah well and the thing <laughs> is is i used to do contract mowing for different people and ranches and stuff and some of those pastures ain't been cut in three or four years so you do have to go off exploring and you're trying to stay out of the land ditches but the dog fennel six foot high even across the pasture so you don't know what you're mowing until you get into it so there's some areas i'm like oh that seems shady so i'll back into it with the mower and try to back a trail in and you know, but, uh, shoot, my first tractor was a Ford 23 and a half horsepower, three cylinder tractor that I started with a screwdriver, oh. <laughs> turned the key on and jumped the solenoid and off we went. And I did so much <clears throat> unbelievable stuff. Cause the, the, the first thing, the first piece of property I owned was a house in a ranch at neighborhood and it had pepper trees from front to back, side to side. And, uh, I got it at a pretty decent price and, the first thing I wanted to do was open up that backyard for my horses. I brought my horses with me and they had horses, but all that horse could do is walk from the barn in the back, the road to the gate. And that's it. And they had a pond in there, but they fenced the pond off because one of the horses had gotten into it. And it was basically a muck hole with a little water on the top. And the way that the pepper trees grow, they grow like a giant tumbleweed. So they're coming out from the center. So they're growing all around the pond. And when the horse got in and couldn't find a way back out because all these trees were poking them in the face. So it was easy to squeeze by in one direction, kind of like a hog trap, easy to squeeze in. And then it closes off on you on the way back. How did you get rid of the pepper? I mean, they're so they drop so oh many gosh. seeds. That's why okay. they once you get Brazilian pepper, it's yeah. forever. So those things are like the bane of my existence. And if I haven't seen them in the middle of the state nearly in the prevalence that I see them on the coast. For some reason Brevard has just ate up with them. But how I got rid of that, very first thing, me and that little tractor went in there with a steel farm boss chainsaw. I think it's a two seventy two. I love that saw. It's got a twenty one inch bar. And that thing is a hoss. And I would go in and I'd cut, I'd, I'd crawl in, low crawl in and cut the tree at the base and I'd wrap a chain around it with a slip hook and I'd tie it to the boom on my little tiny tractor and I'd leave out doing a wheelie steering, steering with the brakes because you can brake each side yeah. independently. So, and I would drag it in a big circle and then I'd do another one and I'd keep dragging them in a big circle until I got them piled up and then I'd cut them flat. I'd walk around on top of them with a chainsaw, get them cut flat as I could and I'd cover them in burn fuel, which is 
half diesel, half gasoline, and uh, makes it a little less kaboomy when you light it. And I'd pour myself a little trail 30 feet away and light it with the torch. And uh, I just cut and burned, cut and burned for six months. And I was the whole time I was thinking, man, there's got to be an easier way to do this. Probably, yeah, chemicals, but. Well, it's a forestry mulcher. And that's eventually what I got into. When I bought my first forestry mulcher, I was like, God, I wish I would have known about this when you I know, started. I but but, but it brought end, me oh, down that road. At the end of the day, it was a lot of sweaty labor where you had to oh, cut yeah. the tree out. Oh, yeah. And then after the trees removed, constantly burn and manage to keep all the new growth from coming back up until there was no more little pepper seedlings everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And as as far as the uh, fire department and the forestry department was concerned, I just had a really big bonfire every Friday. Mm. But I was, uh, you know, you're supposed to pull permits for pile burns. But it, I wasn't pile burning. It was a really big bonfire. So, so <laughs> but, you know, the, the those pepper trees will grow back from the stump. And they do sucker from, when you sucker a tree, you can, like, it'll sucker off the stump this when they sprout back out of the stump it's uh, that's how they grow eucalyptus so likes brothers actually grows a lot of eucalyptus and you can get like seven cuttings out of the dang trees because they go and they cut the tree at the base and that's the first cut and then it all suckers back off the stump they let it grow up to be like freaking 80 feet tall again and come in and do another cut and they just keep cutting it down and um pepper trees will do the same thing so it's very very persistent invasive tree and to get rid of it permanently and I'm not sure. I, I know for the environment, it was glad that the trees were gone. So I'm not giving this the EPA environmental seal of approval or anything. But I took a paddle bit and I drilled holes in the stump from the top. And I took a funnel and filled it with glyphosate and diesel and put a bit of saran wrap over the top with a rubber band so it wouldn't get rained out. Because uh, it was in the summer. I didn't want it to rain all my chemicals out. And wait for the, that tree, that stump to imbibe the poison. And it'll poison the whole root system out. Because it will continue to grow back up and re-sprout. Uh, unless, and then after that, you just mow consistently. And get the little guys while they're little. Or if they're, the tree is small enough, I'll throw a slip hook around it. And pull it out, stump root and all. And I left out with... My F-250 pulled out quite a big number of stumps. Because I also had... if you, In case anybody wants to be made a man, a... 23 horsepower uh kohler manual stump grinder where you can lock one wheel and you have to manhandle it back and forth to grind the stump and what i did because the stumps for mature pepper trees are so wide because it basically just creates like it's like they grow together so it's like we are legion pepper tree and they they push together on the base and they create like this multi tree base where each branch is like the size of your thigh consisting of this massive base. So I would actually uh, mulch a hole in the ground around it. I'd grind a hole in the ground around it with the, with the stump grinder. And then I threw a chain underneath the stump and I'd leave out with my F-250 and quite a bit of snatching and screaming from my poor six liter. And, uh, you know, uh, those things already have problems before you, you beat the hell out of them. I think most of our listeners probably do not have any idea what we're talking about at this point. With regards to the machinery. Okay, uh, Ford 6-liter diesel. It's an F-250 made from 2003 to 2012, I think. So I'll say the the best piece of private property I ever had access to <clears throat> was like West Central Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And I didn't pay a dime for it except for the labor that I put in there. Oh, yeah. And it came with like a, a Kubota M7060 series mm-hmm. tractor. Oh, yeah. and Tractors are so tra- fun. Overs- oversized lawnmower. Oh, oh no no no! This is a, this was a big one. The oversized lawnmower is smaller than that. That that's yeah. like that little blue tractor I was on. You could put yeah. a belly mower on it. <clears> this and... guy, this this was a sure enough tractor. Oh yeah, right. And 
you know, we're sitting there one day, we're like, you know, hey, Mr. Junior, and great people, Mr. Junior, Mr. Loretta, they've both passed away now. Um, <clears throat> but I was like, can you mind if we use that tractor? You know, we'll buy a disc to plant food plots and stuff. He's like, oh, I got a disc. It's in the barn. Sure, just put diesel in it. That's man. all we had. And that tractor, man, dude, disking, dragging, he had it all. And we never knew it for the first year we were there. Oh, but, yeah. man, if that it, tractor if, just, and all we paid for was diesel mm-hmm. and the work to keep the property. Well, if, if you own land, man, you got to have a tractor. I mean, if you got more than five acres, buy a tractor. I mean, if it's already all grass, you can get yourself a Dixie chopper and get by, but you're going to want a tractor anyways. And I used to use that tractor like it was a side-by-side. I'd drive it to go get my mail. I'd drive it down the block to see a friend. I'd drive it to the gas station, fill it up with diesel. Uh, it, was, it was a great time. And it, well, and that brings me to the point, like, you know, we're all getting in here on how much we love tractors and equipment and putting the work in it. And owning a piece of land is a lifestyle adjustment. You have to take care of it um, in the same way you have to take care of anything else. But the work is, you, you get a great sense of pride from it. It's, it's instant gratification in its purest form. You go out there, you put the work in, you clear cut that area, you step back and you say, man, that looks so much better than it did. And then you can start rebuilding, you know, what kind of, what kind of vegetation do I want to replace this invasive stuff that I removed? You know, what kind of ecosystem do I want to, to take hold here and, and doing a little bit of restoration. And I mean, it's, it's just such an a fun part of land ownership and i actually flipped that two and a half acres into my house on five acres um i sold in brevard and moved when i got hired uh to sumter county which is a great story now um, my, my path to, to whitetail is, is amazing uh you know it's the best job i could ever ask for i get up every day and share my passion for the outdoors and, and land ownership is just such an absolute blessing and it happened to me I mean, it gets deep, okay? So I started, and my main goal was to always own land in my life. I wanted to own land because I love people. I love sitting in this room. I love talking to talking to people, but I kind of like people on my terms. So I, I want to be far enough away from everybody else that I don't have to bother with them. Like, you know, if, if you can pee off your porch and wave at your neighbor, you're a little too close. So, you know, just in my opinion. <laughs> and, you know, so I, oh, you know, and I still can. That doesn't mean that I don't, but, you know. <laughs> I mean, but, you saw my neighbor when you used the latrine earlier. You know, so. <laughs> well, you know, that's the problem. The with neighbor's out- house, anyway. That, that's <laughs> the problem with the outdoor guys is you come back from a hunting camp and you get so used to going outside. <laughs> Your wife's like, where are you going? I'm going outside. <laughs> what are you doing? She's like, oh. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, it brings me around to, like, so my goal was to always own land. And my dad's goal was to always own land. And uh, I thought that I could maybe incorporate my goals with his. And part of land ownership, especially larger land ownership, is cows are an amazing land management tool. They're, you know, it's it's up and down in the market and they're a great tax shelter. And there are years you make great money in cows and you wonder why everybody's not doing it. And there are years where you're breaking even and you're like, all right, well, you know, is it worth it? And then there's years why you wonder anybody does it. But, you know, all in all, cattle are a great land management tool. I mean, one of the things that nailed the nailed it down in my two and a half acres is I, I pulled my bulls from my cow herd because I have them on a breeding season. I brought them back and I put them in my back lot, in my two and a half acres. And those bulls cleared that lot of every weed 
fence to fence. You know, they walked in, they ate anything that grew. So I had a nice manicured lawn and I took my box blade and, you know, kind of sculpted the ground and fixed the drainage. And I excavated that mud hole out and I took that, uh, that dirt and I put it in my low spots and I graded everything to the pond. So I improved my drainage on my property and I dug a little canal from a pond to the, to the ditch that went down between me and my neighbor. And that took it out to the, to the street where it went under a culvert and then eventually probably flows out into St. John's. Um, you know, and that's something that I advise people dealing with water in Florida. There's, there's ways to move water around and, uh, you know, cause they see wetlands and, you know, I'm not saying go drain your wetlands, but if you're not under the wetland layer, there's ways to move your water around to make your land more functional because even the dry land of Florida can get wet when it gets to June. But, um, anyways, so with my goal of owning land and owning cattle, I thought, you know, in the military, I was in Iraq. I was like, well, I don't want to go to a desk job. And I, it just doesn't sound very attractive to me. And I've always made my living outdoors. What can I do outdoors? And I thought, you know, it'd be cool to be a cowboy. You know, I, I did a little bit of bull riding in, in the Marine Corps. And I was like, well, I'm way too far behind the game to be a bull rider. Like any professional sport, those kids start when they're like two years old. You know, they're hitting pro at 18 and they're just, you know, it's lights out from there. So I'm too far behind that game. And we didn't grow up in that. I more or less grew up on the river in what is essentially a suburb. Um, you know, so I figured I'd go to school for animal sciences. So I went to school for animal sciences and I knew I had to cut my teeth and learn a few things and kind of see the ins and out of the business. So I figured I'd hire on as a ranch hand. And, you know, I was way too far behind the game on that too. I mean, those cats you know high school is 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 secondary to their want to to drive cows they've been you know riding horses with their dads who are cowboys for years and years and years and they you know they're already great hands by the time they're you know 12 years old and i'm 26 years old because i didn't go to college till i was 22 because i did four in the marine corps four in college so i'm 26 years old trying to teach myself how to ride a horse so like can you ride a horse i was like well you know i i uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i watched a youtube video once <laughs> yeah yeah i stayed at a holiday Inn express last night so you know my first day on the job and they hired me i think largely because the, the ranch manager was a uf grad and he liked that um basis of knowledge whereas you know the more practical aspect of the ranch foreman's they want that basis of experience and in terms of practical application in cattle that's really what counts so everything i learned about cows i learned after i left the university i know i knew everything about a cow but i didn't know anything about a cow when i left the university and everything i learned that mattered happened after that and i you know i'm man enough to say that degree ain't nothing but a piece of paper the, the experiences that those you know old cowboys have are irreplaceable they know more about raising cows in the state of florida so anyways, you know, I mean, first day on the job, boss rides up to me. He's like, hey, if you can't keep up, we ain't got no need for you here. And I'm just trying my butt off to stay in the saddle and keep up with these guys. And they can get their horse to walk faster than mine. And I hadn't figured out how to get a horse to walk out yet. So I'm trying my damnedest to get this horse up with them without trotting because we don't trot a horse. Typically, you, you hit a traveling walk. And if you let a horse trot, they want to trot everywhere because it's an easier gait for them um it's it's the horse's preferred gait for moving around quickly but it's not the most comfortable gait to ride in anyways long story short i cut my teeth there for a little while worked there for 18 months then i went and worked at duda for six months and i actually ended up getting fired from duda um they just weren't seeing the kind of development they thought they needed out of me and they cycled through about four or five cowboys after me and then my buddy who was my foreman at duda ended up becoming the the big guy at duda for cattle 
And he called me back. He said, hey, man, you're, you know, my thing was always let my work ethic speak for itself. I might not be the most skilled horseback rider, but I'm a damn hard worker. And so when it came to building fence and running cows in the pens, I was always working as hard as I could. And there was an appreciation for that. So he invited me back, you know, to help with marketing and branding. And I ended up day working there for another three or four years. And I'd work seasonally for them for about six months. And, you know, I was like, there's no money in cowboy. And when I worked at Likes Brothers, I got paid like 11 bucks an hour. And that dude, I got paid less than that, but I couldn't afford to not have a job. I had a family. And, I mean, the hours are long. I mean, we were hitting 40 hours by Wednesday at Likes Brothers. I mean, we were putting in 80-hour work weeks, especially coming up to shipping. Um, so, you know, I was like, well, the money, you know, it's not the Cowboys. It's Likes have money. And the dudas have money. It must be because they have cows. So I'm going to go get my own cows. That is false. That is not the quickest way to do land. Yeah, I went about this whole thing. I came into this thing backwards. So owning land is a function of your capabilities, which is dependent on your equipment. And owning cattle is a function of your ability to own land, which is dependent on your ability to work the land. So you have to be capable. But, you know, these are things that I learned by doing everything exactly backwards. You know, just kind of like I started off leaving the Marine Corps with my fiance and we had, you know, my stepkids and all that. So and then I went to college and then so I did that whole portion of life backwards, too. But, man, we made it work. So we got out there to it and we ended up getting cows. And dad was, you know, we, we sat down, we did the sheets. We figured break even was about 200 cows. I could make about $60,000 a year to live on, you know, net after we covered costs. So he's pushing it hard, get more and more leases, more and more leases. And, um, you know, a lot of times buying leases, you got to buy the cows to get the lease because there's plenty of cattle, but there's not nearly enough leases. So I'm collecting herds on top of cattle that I'd bought previously anyways. And I ended up way too overcrowded and I got myself. Into Welcome a- to hay. Oh my gosh. Yes. By far. Hay and molasses is by far my biggest bill. Um, you know, so, you know, we're feeding the brakes off of these things. And dad was the equity partner. He'd buy the cows, but I had to take care of them. So I'm working 60 hour weeks to leave Friday, drive two and a half hours from Brevard to Levy County to take care of my cows and Levy and Marion, uh, spend, give all my money to my hay guy, turn around, drive back to work and then work the rest of the week, turn around. And it was just nerve wracking because if cow gets out, you know, I'm at work on horseback down there. I can't tear out and go get my cows. You know, so I try to make friends with local cowboys and stuff, but they don't necessarily want to take care of your business. That's your business, you know, Um, but they're friendly enough. They'll help you. But, you know, eventually you got to start paying them, which I was always fine with doing. I was like, if you put a cow in, I will pay you your day, your day wage. So if you see a calf or a cow out, it's going to cost me more than that in gas to get up and back. I will pay you your day wage to put the calf back in. Um, and that's what we did. And every once in a while, you know, they do you a freebie if they walk up and the calf just jumps back in. They just say, hey, I put a calf back in. No worries. But if they got to, you know, get a horse out and stuff, you know, that's how cowboys get paid. They get paid to sit in the saddle. I mean, I don't blame them for it, you know, and they're far more skilled than I I was. And I realized that quickly. Uh, so to advance to the point I got in, I took too big of a bite of the apple and I was dying of indigestion trying to feed all these cows. And, uh, around that time, you know, things were just not fun. Uh, you know, I was stressed the max losing my hair and dad's like, yeah, I'm a bounce. Like, this is not fun. This is way deeper than I wanted to go. I don't think we're close to, to break even. And me and him had a falling out over that. Cause I basically got left in the lurch, but he did me the solid of leaving me whatever equity he brought into the business. Cause he could have said, I want my equity out 
And then all of the expense that I spent would have been for nothing because he'd get his equity back and all the money I spent would have been gone into cow shit by that point, you know? Literally. Um, yeah, exactly. But he did me the solid. He, he left as gracefully as he could, but there's no easy way to leave a partnership without getting upset with each other. So we were on the outs for a little while. And I mean, it was, it was a little bit of him not knowing. And I think to an extent, we both kind of over romanticized the idea of owning cows, even though I, I worked them, you know, and got a paycheck for working cows for other people, um, you know, to whatever extent I could do that for them. And, um, so we were kind of getting in and out of it and I got into a hole and I didn't want to let anything go. I was trying as fast as I can to spin back up to fill that void in the partnership and things got hard and it got real bad real fast and you know I, through this entire time from the time i left was in the military left the military through college and and that i, had, I was largely agnostic and it, you know if i have a sin it, it's pride i didn't want help i didn't want help from anybody especially god because i wanted to claim i did everything on my own and as a wiser and more mature person i can tell you now that you may do everything on your own but you only succeed with god's permission you know, and um, it got to a point, you know, where I had to move closer to the cows. And this is after the partnership and we we're selling the company house. And um, and I was I was moving closer to the cows and I went to go look at a piece of property that was 30 acres. It was priced really well. It was like, you know, at the time, I think it was like 159 or something like that. This was way before everything really took off a couple of years ago. And the guy who had it listed was the agent north of me and he was the first agent in Florida. So I went to go look at it and I'm talking to him about the things that I'm talking to you guys about today and my opinions on them and stuff like that. He says, he seemed to know a lot about land. I said, yeah, he said, you should put an application. And uh, to preface this, I got to a point where, you know, I broke down and I just said, I can't do it on my own anymore. And I prayed for the first time in a long time. I said, God, I need help. I said, I'm in a hole that is of my own making and I can't climb out of here. You know, I don't know what to do. And it, it got worse after that too, but he had already given me that exit with Whitetail on that day that I met Cody. And to preface this, I had two six liter trucks that took turns breaking down. So I was spending at least a thousand dollars a month in the shop to get these trucks up so I can see these cows that needed to eat. I was doing everything I possibly could. Hindsight being 2020, I should have let go about 33% of the herd off the rip. You know, and we got in over our head because I was waiting for a lease to open up, but I had to buy these cows now. So I overstocked, waiting on this lease, and this lease came too little too late. So by the time that space opened up, these cows were in poor shape. Now I'm bumping cows around and trying to supplement nutrition way over what I would normally feed to get them caught back up. The easiest way to keep get a cow fat is keep it fat. You know, once you have to feed them back, you've already lost the game. It's going to cost you a ton. Um, so, you know, you don't want to overstock and I never wanted to stock more than, uh, one cow calf pair per about three acres of grass that I had. And that's still pretty tight. And I was probably down to like one and a half, two acres at a point. I just had way too many cows. I had cows coming out my ears cause we were trying to hit that break even point. So, you know, I went ahead and, you know, I asked God for help. And, uh, the reason the broke down trucks is relevant is because me and my wife were going back and forth about going to go see this property cause my truck had broke down. And I said, I made a commitment to the man. I'm a man of my word. I'm going to be there. I don't care. And we came up to see a friend in Ocala who's uh, actually a charter captain. And he let me borrow his F-150 because we drove her Civic up here. And we took the F-150 out there to see Cody. And he pitched me on the idea. He's like, well, you, how do you make a living? I said, you know, mostly 1099 work, this and that. I was running equipment at the time too. And I was doing that to supplement 
my income on top of the cows. But if you run equipment, especially old equipment, and I learned everything about every business I was in the absolute hard way. I bought that piece of equipment with like 4,000 hours. It was Cat 299C, and every hose on that thing was ready to say see you when I bought it. And every mulching job I went on, I did not leave without having the hydraulic guy out there at least once. And there went all of my profit margin. So I was breaking even or making a thousand bucks for, you know, six days worth of work, you know, to cover all my extra costs. So, you know, it was just deficit spending to try to get on top. And it was, it was, it was tough. So we made it out there to see Cody and I said, you know, I did a little of this, a little of that, forestry mulching. And, you know, I was pointing out stuff about the priority power comes in down this way. Is this an easement? You know, is it needed this, that? And he's, well, you should put an application. And my wife had recently got hired at Vicor Scientific, which is uh, COVID medical billing because, you know, might as well make hay while the sun shines. So she was getting paid at home because she's like a data entry specialist and she'd done bookkeeping and accounting. That's where her experience is at. And she just got a new job. So I was fired up about things turning for us. So I shot that application off right away because I always keep a resume in my Google Drive. So I went in, I edited it, I targeted the resume a little bit, sent it in. And it took me about six months to get hired because it was all during this COVID thing, which made everything that was happening worse, made it way worse. So like everything just dogpiled on me at once. And, you know, as soon as I sent out that flare, that exit opened up. And I'd always been a doubting Thomas in the, in, in the realms of faith, like, you know, if God's real, why can't I see him, you know, and stuff like that. And I mean, boy, he intervened in my life in such a significant way that if I was to deny, because I did everything I could to make my life work on my own, and it did not. And it wasn't for lack of trying. And if it wasn't, you know, if, if, if uh, you know, the only kind of luck I had was bad luck. And it just put me right into whitetail property and everything that I had gone through to that point lended to the base of experience that I needed uh, to be able to help advise customers and purchasing land. And, um, you know, it was a real fortunate thing because um, this is tough for me. It's all right. Um, My dad passed away last month and uh, he finally ended up buying a piece of property in Georgia he bought uh, about 60 acres in Dahlonega, Georgia. And it was everything that he ever wanted out of a piece of property. He has a cabin on a trout stream. It's the most beautiful property. And it's nothing that I could have ever offered him in Florida. But initially, our, our goals were to buy here. Mom's a pro-am cyclist, so she does a lot of cycling in Georgia. I come from a family of type A personalities. So we all find a niche and hammer it. And, uh, you know, I landed in my niche. And the last good day that Dad had... I closed my biggest sale and I was driving up to see him because mom told me it was getting bad. He ended up dying of um, uh, intestinal cancer uh, and uh, at 60 years old. And I was able to go up there and, you know, tell him the testament of faith that I had because of whitetail and show him that I was going to be okay. Because up until then, I was making like 10, 15 an hour, you know, and I was trying everything I could, robbing Peter to pay Paul. And, you know, I could not get anything to straighten out for me. And it wasn't for lack of trying. And I was, you know, people liked me and they knew me and I did good work. It's just I couldn't make the numbers work because I didn't have enough upstart capital and I couldn't get anything rolling to work. So I started the cows and I started the equipment to roll the cows. And then I was like, 
you know, and when the equipment started breaking and giving out on me, I eventually lost that piece of equipment to an equipment fire. That was not my fault. I had a solenoid. <laughs> I, I clean, I clean my mulcher out every four hours. I stop oh. and clean out my mulcher, blow it out. I was religious about it. I take really good care of my equipment, but the, that it was already geriatric when I got it. And it, this is things I'm learning now because the guys that are in the mulching game, they buy a brand new piece of equipment. They pay it off in five years, they dump it at 3,000 hours, and they roll that equity into their next piece because you're running that thing at absolute, the highest RPM it can run to run that mulcher head. And I had a great mulcher head, but my carrier was old, old. So it stuck, and I lost track. I was like, what's going on? And I'm sitting there, and I'm smelling. I was like, oh, no, I smell fire, dude. And I get out, and I'm mulching uh, in a pasture down a fence line, clearing for a new fence line. And I get out and I see that. So I'm just screaming, you know, F, F. Like, you know, I'm screaming as loud as I can. Fortunately, there's a group of uh, Guatemalan dudes building a fence in that pasture. And they jumped in that little Toyota Hilux and come over there like the Mexican Water Brigade. And they put it out with a bunch of bottles of water. And I mean, they totally saved me from having that entire machine burned to the ground. But it had burned enough of the wiring harness and it was old enough that that was totaled. So, you know. And then I run into whitetail shortly after that, but you know, to go back to the point, skipping forward, uh, I ended up closing my biggest sale on my dad's last good day. And I got to go in and tell him about him and just let him know that, look, it's going to work out for me. Like I, I found my home, I got a place and I'm, you know, I found my niche and I'm a mine it. Cause you know, dad's, he worked for Edward Jones and he was highly, highly successful. I mean, the company rewrote how it did things based off of how my dad did it. And if you asked him how he did it, he said, I didn't said the things that I did were humanly impossible. He said, there's no reason anybody should have met with the success I did, even with the work ethic that I had, which he gave to me. Um, he said, you know, God, God did everything for me. I, you know, he, but he was never one to lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. And he, dad had always kept a really strong faith and I just kind of drifted off of it. So it was, it was an important part of the story for me. It's amazing that this whole thing, and we don't touch on faith very much is like, but it's interesting this 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 incredible story about a young man who just wanted his peace, right? The place to call home, a place to run a business, into conservation, into animals, mm-hmm. is doing everything he can. And in the end of the day, without the experience, without being properly properly capitalized, working himself to the bone, and then finally had to come to the conclusion that this is beyond me. I, I need help. That's not necessarily this world. Yeah. Right. And then somebody else, you know, it's interesting the way God works that way that he was sending you a message all along the way that's saying like, this ain't going to work the way you're trying yeah, to Yeah. But it. as you can tell, I had a really thick skull. So, I mean, it had to hit me in the young, head. Young you gotta be, re- you gotta be in the place that you're ready to accept it. And I'm not one to, to really preach. Cause I feel like faith is personal. Yeah, because me too. for some people it takes that personal experience. And for me, it certainly did, you know, and I, I had always, you know, put off to my wife who's always been the bedrock of the faith in our house. Cause she believed in, in me and God the whole way and knew that she's like, you'll come back one day. You just watch, you just watch. And I was like, it's never going to happen. I so, was like, you know, and, uh, how did you exit? How did you get out of the bind? I know you took the job with whitetail. 
Oh, how yeah. did you get out? Well, I mean, I ended up reducing my coward number uh, significantly. And, you know, as I asked God to clear my way, um, a lot of my leases are going into development. So I'll end up selling some of those cows. And, uh, you know, my first sale in Whitetail was good enough for me to spread some money around. And I actually had a really good friend show up and start helping me. And we just made it a camping thing. And I have a cow camp, like a lot of people have a deer camp. I had a little shed because when I was commuting, I'd come up and I'd sleep in a Weather King shed that I built out. And dad helped me with that too a little bit because I was like, listen, I'm driving two and a half hours and sleeping in my truck. Like, you got to help me out. And so we we found this Weather King shed that got repoed for like four grand. And I'm, I'm handy. I've built pole barns and every other thing. So I built this insulated, built the shed out, threw a window unit in it, called the power company, had them drop a meter box on the pole in the pasture, and I plugged it in with an RV plug to a meter box, and I'd stay there. And sounds that like turned sounds like our studio. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's <laughs> about this size, yeah. So you so a buddy of mine had turned it into you know we also have cow dogs, and you got to work cow dogs for them to stay in practice. But it's tough when you're in production because you don't have time to take young dogs out and let them screw it up. So, especially when you got to get to the pens that day. So, you almost have to dedicate, and we would do this on the ranch at Duda, but, you know, I didn't have dogs. The the uh, full-time cowboys would have dogs in the dog pens, and they'd get to take them out. And I actually got my dogs off my boss. He's got a great dog out there. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, to get you to got, the, to get you got to the so point. so many moving pieces. Yeah, there was a ton was, of it, dude. It was way too you, complicated. But to you get had to a the bunch point, of cows. How did you exit? It sounds like you said you sold a bunch of cows off. Yeah, I still have 66. Yeah, I still have 66 of them. So, you know. No, that's actually pretty damn impressive. But yeah, well, and it's tough to just exit and not just totally eat it. So you have to leave at the right time. Nobody wants to buy cows in the winter. So I'm looking to offload some of them coming up, especially as those leases are looking to move into development. And I'm just keeping them out there right now. So. You know, the guy who lets me lease that land did me a, a favor. That's a privilege, especially with the shortage of land. So I'm not going to, you know, uh, throw him in the lurch by by exiting and him losing some kind of uh, tax. He'd lose a tax benefit off of it. Sure. It, it would be expensive. Um, so I, I'm not going to do that to him. So, you know, I ended up cutting back those cow numbers and that made it more manageable because it, it, it cut me back by 33%. And a lot of how it got better is my wife uh had the benefit of getting that job and she was getting paid time and a half there's no time and a half in direct production agriculture so when i tell you we hit 40 hours by wednesday we weren't making time and a half from wednesday to friday and saturday if we worked saturday we were still making straight time because direct production agriculture um but my wife got that job and that really helped us out and i we restructured a lot of our equity i let a bunch of stuff go i sold stuff paid debts refinance because once i had control of the equity in the company i was able to move uh equity around so i sold a cattle shoot because i had to and i did some other things um man i had to give up my nice silencer hydraulic shoot i really like that too um, but i sold that and um you know it just allowed me to pay down a lot of debts and put some money up for hay and get ahead of the ball again a little bit um you know and it, it still got worse but it was starting to stabilize like it was it was it's like a roller coaster but to go back real quick to that point, we had dogs. My buddy wants to work his dogs. I got cows in a cabin. So we just made it a thing like going to deer camp, go to cow camp once a month. We cook a cowboy breakfast over the fire. We work the dogs three times a day uh, for the weekend. You know, Friday we'll work them the evening. We'll work them Saturday, Sunday, Monday, or 
Saturday and Sunday, three times a day. And then we roll out. And by doing that, I was able to put more management on my cows, which helped because I basically only had time to come up, ride the fences, make sure nothing was out, make sure the fences were up, go to the next pasture. Cause my pastures are like an hour apart, even when I get up here, you know, so I was riding around doing that, pay my hay man, you know, check my, I had trail cameras up on my wells to make sure the wells stay full and then bounce and get back to Coco. You know, I'd do some fence pasture this, that, and the other thing. But, uh, you know, if you have to bring a horse, it's twice the diesel on the highway because, you know, it just, so I basically, I don't know how, but I got around it and well, I know how, cause I asked for help and I got what I asked for, but you know, um, but yeah, that, that's how I got to it. So, so if we're going to bring this all to a close here, it, you brought up a point earlier, you, you're not going to, you're not going to buy land, the, the average American is not going to go out and buy that piece of hunting property. They're not going to have all the things they weren't, they, they, they want for, uh, well, by standing for a shovel, standing on a shovel and and praying for a hole. Yeah. And, and that brings me into another point that I wanted to make too. Um, if you're trying to get into land, particularly if you're young now, like dad, before he went out, he bought the primo, it was done. It had the cabinet, had everything. And you pay the price for that. Granted, it was in Georgia, so it was far more affordable than Florida. But, you know, we pretty much bought it turnkey. And you can't buy land turnkey. That 90 acres I sold was turnkey. All you had to do was keep it up. But if you're young and you're getting into land, the first piece of land you buy won't be your last. You'll take a piece of land and you'll put your work into it. And you'll turn it into something that somebody else will value more than what you paid for it. And that's your opportunity to sell that 10 acres and go buy 20 or 40 and do the same thing over again. And you work your way through phases of land ownership, same way you do home ownership or anything else. You don't have to start with a thousand acres, but you got to start. So this, this passionate tale, it, it, it has to do with cows. It has to do with a young man following a dream and saying, I'm going to go do something, which whether it's cows or whether you're going to open a restaurant or whether you want to get in the insurance business. There's so many things that are similar here, right? We all start. And you know, you see where you are and you see where you want to be. In your case, it's I'm going to buy cows and then I'm going to sell cows. But along the way, you've got that journey and holy shit. That's where the rubber hits the road. All these things that you didn't, you just can't see coming, right? Whether yeah. Hindsight's twenty twenty, buddy. Gear breaking down. Drought. In every business, there's something like this. Mm-hmm. And I think that what you went through is something that every business owner goes through, right? You start out with a dream. You got some money and you start. And, man, it takes a lot. Man, people that rag on small business owners or characterize them. They have no idea how much sand it takes to leap out there and say, I'm going to operate without a net. Mm. And you'd go. And the only way to gain the perspective, the only way to understand how to push through the failures is to fail. You have to fail forward and just pray and hope that you are lucky enough that along the way, you don't hit a failure that just irrevocably sinks the ship because man it's i think you can attest running a small business 
is like paddling a boat with a hole in the bottom. Oh, yeah. The question is, is can you keep that hole patched? It's never going to stop leaking. Mm-hmm. Can you keep that hole patched enough that yeah. you can keep moving forward? Can, can you paddle fast enough that you can, uh, you know, keep the boat on a plane to bail the water? It's tough, oh, man. Yeah. And and you were running a 60 or maybe 100 cow operation. Yeah, we were as 100 a at, my, at my big, biggest, and it was way outsized. And, well, I mean, land's a commodity in Florida. That That is certainly a, a fact, and that applies to cattle leases and, and everything else as well. So, but yeah, it was, it was, it was a ride. Your story is an American story. Um, you know, I've, I've been an American all my life and I've been self-employed since I was 22, 21. So I, I appreciate all that, but I've never lived in another place, but I really don't know if we have, I really don't know if the opportunity, that's the crazy thing. I don't know if in a lot of other places there's the opportunity to be able to swashbuckle on in there and say, I'm going to give it a run. Well, it was tough. And, and you know, I would offer dad for the upstart. Cause I mean, he did believe in me and put a lot of capital down, but you know, it got to a point where it didn't make sense. And, I don't think either of us really wanted to admit it, but he was ready to, to, you know, do other things. And, um, you know, it's just, that's how you learn, man. Uh, My mom used to say when I was a kid, I used to leave every fall with my head. I'd tuck my hand, you know, tuck my hands, my hands would go straight behind me and I'd fall forward and lead, lead the fall with my head. And, uh, I mean, I did that metaphorically and this is what, I mean, I just led hard headed, hard charging. I mean, in, if I have a fault, it's that I do things way too hard. Um, Everybody does. Well, that's how you learn. There's, it's it's I mean, that Marine Corps mentality. I was going to power level it. You know, if it didn't work the first time, I'll just do it again harder. You know? <laughs> well, no, that, that's, man, for those that are listening, man, if they kind of didn't follow this, you're hearing a passionate plea of a fella who, no matter how hard it got, just kept grinding. And then, had a door open with whitetail properties, which we've really not really gotten into that's allowed him another conduit of self-employment income. Well, I mean, all of this is, is really super relevant to whitetail because like I said, I mean, we're not your, we're not your average run of the mill. No, but you're still running cows too, yeah, right? Well, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm taking it. They've taken a backseat to whitetail. My business with whitetail has grown exponentially since I've been in it. And uh, I've been in central Florida, I think coming up on, this is going into my second year. So eight, 18 months plus. So, um, and you know, we've been only been in Florida for, I think three years, almost four. Uh, right. Cody was the very first person in Florida and he really paved the way for us. And I mean, it, it was, it's tough cap, uh, you know, capturing market share, but it becomes quickly apparent to people that we're the most informed in that space because there's not another realtor in the world. And well, maybe there's few that have as common experience as we do in whitetail to our connection, either through hunting or agriculture or, you know, it, and they do if if they do anything well it's staffing and i mean they do a lot of things well but the people that they hire are top notch you're talking realtors that are more in touch with what the land has to offer than how many crappers right. are on the property right yeah yeah and that when it comes to buying a piece of yeah no we property want, you want to hunt on yeah that's what you want yeah you know it's i mean okay so to bring you through a showing 
say you call me and you want to look at a piece of property I have. We're going to walk the whole thing. I've had bigger properties where I've had to borrow a buggy from a friend, like a side-by-side, had good V-rib tires on it, and uh, we'd go bogging, and we'd go around the property because it was in the summer, so it was fairly wet because it's Florida, uh, so expect that. But, you know, I'm going to show up. I got my snake snake boots on. I have a machete. It looks like a cane knife on an axe handle that I really like because it makes short work of heavier limbs than a short machete does. And uh, we'll go bushwhack. I'll take you right to the middle. I'll take you to all four corners. I mean, we get out and we do it. I mean, there's not a lot of people who show up with as much experience, knowledge, and equipment that we invest our own money back into ourselves for the company and buying side-by-sides, you know, boats and and all that, you know. Um, Because I do a lot of waterfront. So, you know, I had bought the Ginu that I own with the intention of scouting properties. I mean, we haven't even gotten into – somehow I've ended up – getting approached with a lot of islands i actually have four islands listed right now that takes a boat to get to and i go and i get in my boat and i go to the island i look at it and i take pictures i walk all over the island i go back i look at my maps i look at the wetland layers i start looking if there's development potential for the island and islands are a really really niche piece of real estate and it's something why do people want so islands are almost exclusively a recreational piece of property um, it's the same reason that people want Lamborghinis, uh, in, in their natural appeal. It's because you almost can't get more real Florida than owning an Island, but <laughs> what you're able to do with an Island can be somewhat constricted or limited based on, uh, where it is in the wetland layers map and, and stuff like that. So the islands that I have would possibly need to be mitigated. You at least need to start out with the delineation survey to know if you can build anything. Where, where Whereabouts are these islands located? So these four are in the Withlacoochee River. Oh, sweet. But I recently, yeah, they're they're just uh, they're just west of the Blue Gator and just east of Lake Rousseau. So they're in a really prime spot. I mean, you can motor right to the Rainbow River. You can, you know, grab yourself a beer and a burger at the Blue Gator and go back and crash on your island and camp and do whatever. But I get a lot of people, can I build a house? You're talking to our kind of people, though. Yeah, yeah. And, well, for the most part, because we're exposed to the whole market. When we market, so we have a very deep marketing strategy. Um, we're signature listers with CoStar, which owns Lands of America, Landwatch, Land.com. So those are your biggest land ownership websites out there. So everything that we list goes right to the top. And, uh, you know, we have, because we're a national brokerage, we're able to do stuff like that through collective bargaining. You know, we have a whole bunch of agents that are going to carry signature listings and we're able to stay at the top and keep everybody up at the top of the listings through our through our market power, essentially. Florida is a new market for us because we've only been here for three years, but, you know, our realtors have been here their whole lives. Uh, we call ourselves land specialists, to be precise, because that's what we But do. you're not wrong. Well, you are. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but to get to it, I mean, I even got approached recently about an island that I've just been able to get out and go scout because i had to upgrade from the the eight horsepower johnson two-stroke that i had on the back of that ginu to a tahatsu 30 horsepower engine in order to get across the uh the sound to anklet key because there's a private island there that i was uh, approached to look at and you know i'm i'm really hopeful to get the listing because it's, it's gorgeous and he's he owns 186 acres of island two islands and submerged land around the islands and on the submerged land now he he did something that's incredibly unique and uh, a great excellent use of submerged land he built a tiki like out in the middle of the flats 
And when you see it, it has signs up that says, you know, private property and all that. And there's hundreds of boaters out there. And for the most part, they really did respect it. I was walking around on it and people were looking at me like, are you crazy? What are you up there for? That's private property. So I was, I was impressed by how much people respected the signs. But I mean, he could go out and he had a slip in it for his boat. So he can go out offshore fishing all day, come back to his cheeky in the middle of the flats on the west coast of Florida and, you know, pull his catch in and barbecue it up right there and just, you know, live the offshore fishing dream. So, I mean, it's incredibly valuable recreational property. And, you know, I'm still having to explore into whether or not it, it's very difficult to comp an island because it's almost a blind item. There are islands for sale and they range from those islands that I have are listed for 220 to $21 million for pumpkin key. Or I, I don't think, think I, I occasionally peruse how to buy an island. Yes. <laughs> Dude, I, mean, I look uh, at it, I'm like, whoo! I, I know. Uh, islands are attractive because they're they're the most fantastical land ownership dream. You can't get more secluded than, an than owning your own island. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, it's like it's this is my country. No, oh, yeah, it's, you know? it's, it's unbelievable. So, you know... Um, Buy an island, become a sovereign citizen. Nation of Jim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, so we do a lot of uh, really specialized things like that, and our branding allows us to get, you know, maximum exposure on it. We have a, produ- a professional production team um, that works inside Whitetail Properties owned by us. I believe they're called uh, November Studios, and those boys shoot some amazing, like, outdoor channel quality plugs for these places and you know as a realtor i pay for those like you know it's in our company but it's not free for me but that's the that's the kind of marketing that i'm willing to invest in those kinds of properties and they'll come out and they'll fly the drone and they'll put the cool music to it and they'll do the panning shots and all that beautiful stuff that you see on the outdoor channel and um you know it just comes out really top notch so it's just another avenue of marketing that we have um and, and properties like that in particular really deserve it and, um, you know, I've been carrying those islands in the Withlacoochee, just waiting for the right buyer with the right vision. I mean, honestly, I'll sell it to anybody who has the money and wants to buy it, of course, you know, but, um, that yeah, particular, but you've got, you've got to line up that price with the desire. Who do you think, right, right. who do you think those islands in the Withlacoochee? So I've talked to a few Who's people. Who's the ideal prospect? So there's a few people, you know, um, I want to run kayak tours or stuff like that. And with the difficulties to building on those particular islands, that they're more ideally set for a rec use like that. I want to run a kayak tour. I want to do uh, a, a nature education center kind of thing. Like we can pull up and I can, you know, show them my bird and be like, this is a osprey or, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, we've all had those guys show up, the Boy Scouts, and give us the, the nature thing, and they bring all their animals, stuff like that. Um, I could see something like that happening. Somebody wants to tie up a houseboat. You know, there's ways to kind of skirt, develop, you know, can't build on it. Well, can I get a dock permit and tie up my houseboat? Now you got this whole island in your front yard and the river on the other side of your, in your backyard, and you, you're tied up in your houseboat. So, you know, and I have a friend who owns a beautiful piece of property on, um, I want to say it's the Kaiva River but he's not allowed to develop it because of the wetland layer. You have to mitigate it. So what they've done is they've tied up essentially like a floating house and it has to move once a year. So they have like a little eight horsepower Johnson on the back of it. It looks just like my motor. And once a year they take it down the river to the spring and then turn around and come back and tie it back up. And that that's all that's required for them to be able to leave that there. I think that's near my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I think I know that boat. It may be. 
they're they're right across from i forget what it's called but there's like a little beach bar kind of thing on yeah, the corner that is next to my neighborhood yeah yep. yeah so uh uh the guy who uh owns that uh his buddy of mine named Rob, his parents own it and we've camped out on it before. And it's a super cool property. And we spent the whole night on the river and it, you know, it was a great time and it was, it was a good use. It was an excellent example of a good use of a recreational property that the way that they utilized that, even despite the fact that they were told they couldn't do this or that. And I'm sure eventually if they wanted to mitigate, they probably could. I don't know their individual circumstance there. I just was able to go as a guest um and they, they're not building a house on there. there there was already houses on there at one point yeah well you know and, and the thing is and it's so specific it goes county to county so i can't promise people what they can do with a piece of property all i can do is advise them to speak to the county and i provide them county numbers and they can go and you know tell the county about what their plans are and the county will either yay or nay that but you have to have a little bit of persistence and ingenuity on how you ask what you want and being careful on how you ask it um, cause you don't ever want to get told no by a bureaucracy because that person's going to work there today and tomorrow and the next 10 years. So you have to be, uh, strategical about your future land uses. So I did not expect, uh, a podcast about private land ownership to approach the two hour mark, but here we are. And, uh, we may need to. We, we we may need to revisit this in the future. Oh yeah, I apologize. Like I told you before we started this podcast, uh, when I was cowboying, me and my boss were riding along, and I'd gone about fifteen minutes without taking a breath, and he just staring at me the whole time. And I finally stopped to breathe, and he looked at me and said, "If you could ever find a job that would pay you to talk, you would be a millionaire." You know, when I told Jim at the beginning, I was like, "Oh, this guy can talk," and <laughs> damn. <laughs> uh, i'm sorry but, but i know i do it to people no it's, it's good it, i mean it's uh, been a lot of really good information and stories and it, it it kind of breaks down what florida really is and and the land ownership you know well part of it is i really have to meter people's expectations because they what they think they want and what they actually want aren't necessarily congruent with what they're actually looking for right you know i tell people all the time i live on five acres my back acre is flooded for the whole summer I, it doesn't mean I look at it and be like, oh, I don't want this because it's not all dry. It was a beautiful property. I got great oak trees out there because of that, you know? Well, let's migrate this on into the tip of the week. And I will lead it off with saying, uh, you know, we, we kind of talked about it. We briefly touched on it at the beginning of the uh, the episode. And uh, it's the whole QDMA thing, right? Mm-hmm. You, you hear it a lot with private land ownership where, oh, well, if I don't shoot it, they will. Yeah. And then you're that guy. You are that guy. You are that. I mean, I I totally understand. I don't keep fish. People are like, well, it's slot. I'm like, well, the best gift you can give another fisherman is a chance to catch that fish again. And I mean, the best thing you can do is let a deer walk and let somebody else take it later sometimes, I guess. Right. What? Fishermen yeah. like me love fishermen like you. <laughs> You're welcome. I keep all my pan fish. They're delicious. If I want to eat fish, I <laughs> well, eat bluegill. I eat the shit out of them. Oh, yeah. That's I like, eat a mess of bluegill. That, that's the Swanee, Swanee River, River is for you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. You and oh, I are going to get along fine. Oh, I fished the Swanee River when I was in college in Gainesville. Yeah. I had a little 13 low cider and we ate everything. Who wants to go next? Oh man, I'm going way back in my. I'm, so I'm going to talk about how to milk a cow. <laughs> 
So, um, believe it or not, when you go to milk cow, the first thing you got to worry about is the cow itself. And uh, one of the things that you're constantly fighting off is that little parasites or whatever nasties that get on the udder. So, the first thing you're going to do is give a little, you're going to grab some iodine, mm-hmm. and then you're going to you're gonna dilute that iodine. So, most iodine is like 1% or 2%. You got to know what that is. And then you're going to cut it in half, roughly. Down to about a half percent iodine solution. You give that, there's going to be four udders under there. Call them quarters. You're going to swab that thing real good to keep the mastitis down. Mastitis? Ah, whatever. It's a nasty mastitis. There you go. Mastitis. And then you're, uh, if you think about your, your thumb and your forefinger, you're going to give it a a bit of a stripping to get the old milk out. And then uh, as long as there's no blood or any nasties in there, what you're going to do is you're going to, you're going to reach as high up under that. The udder is the cow's breast into the big old fatty part as you can. And you're going to, you're going to make a loop around that breast with your thumb and your forefinger. And then as you're pulling down, it takes a little bit of a talent because you don't want to be too rough. You're going to slowly pull down. And as you're pulling down, you are going to squeeze then with your middle finger and your ring finger and your pinky finger as you're going down there. And the real talent is when you can get opposite quarters running. So that way you can run two handed. But if you want to practice, you start with your, Start with your pointer finger and then go to your middle finger. You just get it moving in a wave, essentially. And you're going to slowly squeeze down the thing. And then when you're done, as you're pulling down and you're, you're literally a bit of a talented, you're feeling the melt come out and it's spraying down into your into your pitcher. You want to make sure you don't knock your pitcher over and uh, hit it with a little bit of swab again. But give it a bit. Once you're done, let that thing set. And here's where the real tip comes in. Give it about two minutes after you've milked that cow and come back and hit it again. And that is where you get the best part of the milk. That's where all the heavy fat and cream comes out. It's the second milking that really is, that's the good stuff, man. That's where you make your butter. That's a very great tip for a very niche portion of exactly. our Exactly. Well, you know, everybody sees me as like, yeah, I'm the money fella. Yeah. I'm sure the Iowa dairy farmer was, would be very proud of you. I, I was off road for a little bit as a kid, and uh, I do know how to milk a cow. And <laughs> what do you uh, got? The, one last tip of the week is make sure that you are sitting well forward of that rear leg. Oh yes, because when you get a little sideways with that cow, the way they let you know is they will kick the bejesus out of you, and a little subtle cow kick is still enough to knock you the heck out. Yeah, you you're gonna feel it. What do you got, Vincent? <laughs> well, my tip of the week is uh, don't wait to buy land. Buy land and wait. We're not making any more of it. Can't beat it. Yeah, I guess that's what I got. I mean, you want me to elaborate on that? We no, can, it, we can I do mean, another two you, and a half done, hours. Yeah, you, uh, you, <laughs> you know, I'm sure I could stretch that out for you. Before we let you go, I want you to tell people how they can find you and buy land now instead of waiting to buy land. So you can always give me a call on my phone. My number listed online is my personal cell phone rings to my pocket, 321-536-3954. And you can check all of our listings out at whitetailproperties.com. The easiest way is to go to the main website and then hit find an agent, pick your state, and then you see all of our beautiful faces up there. And you can pick on the agent that represents your area. Hopefully it's me. You can click on me and you can see all my current listings. And if you have a piece of land that you would like to sell, there's no better time than now. So, 
even easier than that, I will put Vincent's phone number in the podcast description, plus that website, in case you don't live in Central Florida, and you'll be able to find some land to buy your own slice of heaven. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and like I said, especially if you're young, the first piece of land you buy probably won't be your last. So, you know, get started early and put the equity in, and, you know, there's no equity like sweat equity, man. And uh, land, it just it increases over time, so you can add tons of value by good proper management and that's part of the glory about private land management well vincent i thank you for joining us it's been a great episode and uh we'll catch you guys next week yes sir and before we go i want to give a shout out to my daughter ashlyn who specifically requested the pre-released edition of this so don't forget to to uh email me that for something like that i don't know <laughs> fair enough <laughs> she she asked me not to embarrass her i said you know i'm gonna say all of this on the podcast for you <laughs> <laughs> We'll catch you guys next week. (laughs) All right, later.